Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast and i will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible all i ask in return is a share post and a tag now let's get on with it hello everybody welcome to the urm podcast my guest today is danny reich who is a multi-instrumentalist engineer mixer and mastering engineer he's the owner of good danny studios in lockhart texas and he's worked with some of the best in the business such as lizzo Coheed and Cambria, The Zombies, Third Eye Blind, and many, many others. I introduce you, Danny Reich. All right. Well, Danny Reich, welcome to the URM podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. You said something interesting to Ben in the pre-interview that uh, I wanted some clarification on. I think it was on the topic of interns or assistants, and you said Uh this quote, you're not getting paid, but we still don't want you to work here. Oh, man. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so that's an interesting place to start. I try to find interesting places to start. Yeah, I was I was talking to Ben in particular about the range of quality of interns and on the, the worst end of interns that I've had are a very select, very small group of people who I've had to say, thank you, we're good. And that's kind of a tough pill to swallow when someone says, hey, you're giving your time for free. You're coming in here in an attempt to help and learn. And we just don't want you here. <laughs> it's pretty harsh. It's really harsh. But, you know, the the thing with with a session and the way you sort of curate your session and and run the show, it says a lot for the tone and the the sort of energy and the vibe in the room to the band. And if someone's a presence in the session who is taking away energy, who is injecting themselves in a weird way. You know, there's just, there's just personalities that it's just not going to work out. And I've, I've had to, I've had to let interns go. So that's, that's what that quote is in reference to. That's what I thought. I mean, yeah, I think that, uh, we pretty much agree. I saw that you said that you'd rather have someone with less knowledge, but more, uh, people skills. And that's echoed through, a lot of people who have come on the podcast. Yeah. I think that that's a pretty universal thing, which is interesting because I think lots of people who are learning audio focus so much on the skills, which I guess you have to, but they focus on that and tend to live in this fantasy world that uh, the skills alone are going to do it. No, yeah, it's it's very much a, I mean, this business is all about relationships and uh, 
And uh, it, you know, it doesn't matter how, you know, if you've got a Neve console or what, whatever you've got, it, it doesn't matter if, if no one wants to work with you because of your personality, because there's something there that, that, uh, that just rubs people the wrong way. That's, you're just never going to get work. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how good you're, I mean, maybe you'll get some work, but that's not a long-term game for running a successful career. I think you have to, and you're missing out to me, you're missing out on one of the, the best things about working in this industry, which is the relationships that you form through working on these projects. And, uh, man, it's, it's, yeah, it really is so much about how you, how you interact and the people you sort of run with. And, uh, I think it says a lot about you and, and what your values are, you know? Is that something that you, that came naturally to you or did you have to be, uh, taught? No, you know, that, that came, I, I'm, I'm kind of a people person. I tend to be pretty outgoing. So that, and, you know, I've spent, you know, 15 years, 20 years in a, in a van and, you know, touring and traveling. And it's, you know, I think just, just the experience of being a band person, uh, it's a lot of couches that you're sleeping on. It's a, of people you don't know. There's a lot of good graces that you are depending on. And a lot of that comes with being humble and appreciative and sort of, um, earning people's trust and knowing how to, uh, just navigate those situations. So I think, you know, I, th I think that's sort of part of my personality, but certainly the, uh, you know, just years of touring, it, it just teaches you how to, just how to be, just how to interact with people. You know, I think a lot of that's just growing up, you know, it's interesting about the touring thing. You know how there's sometimes these bands that they should be bigger. Their music's really, really good. They're mm -hmm. really great on stage. They've got everything together, but they just can't seem to get ahead. Yeah. And I've known quite a few of those. And I think without fail, in every one of those situations, I feel like outsiders will say, oh, they got robbed. Uh, they should, uh, it's an unfair industry, et cetera, et cetera. But from the inside, what I've always seen is that they don't get along with people well and they're shitty at relationships and they made, they make bad choices. And that's why they're not getting any further. Nobody in any power wants to say yes to them because they're impossible to work with. And that's without fail. Like seriously, every single time I have personally known a band that should have been bigger, it wasn't, it wasn't some external thing keeping them down. It was them not knowing how to relate to the world, keeping them down. It's tough, man. I mean, I, I, I absolutely agree. I've, I've watched people just shoot themselves in the foot over and over and, uh, oh, they were robbed. They weren't robbed. They, they made sure that that didn't happen because no one wanted to work with them. That that's, that's what it is. And it's, uh, you know, and it's, and it's, there's both sides of it. There are bands that I've had, um, and artists that I've had trouble really. I mean, the, the process is really just so hard. And, you know, I do this every day like, what is it with this? Why is everything so hard with this on this record or with this band? And, you know, you talk to the managers, you talk to it, and it's like, it's like everyone knows, but no one wants to say it. It's a weird thing, you know? And then on the other end, there are producers and mixers and, you know, people who on our side of things who have the same thing. And, you know, I've watched that. In some cases, it's helped people because there is kind of a thing where if you're kind of a bullshit asshole, it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't work in that world. That seems like maybe more of a... Old school? Yeah, something... Yeah. It's like an old school thing where it's like kind of like having a cocky ego about it. It's like, well, he must be important because he's acting important. That's not my experience. That's not my world of music. But I've dealt with it a lot. And those just aren't the relationships that I want to foster long-term 
you know, where we work on multiple records or we end up touring together, whatever. Those just aren't the people I want to surround myself with. And the more I do this, uh, you know, the more, the longer you've been doing this, you know, the the joy of of simply getting like a great snare sound or like a great guitar tone, that's, it, once you've done this long enough, those things are, you can do them fairly, I mean, you have to rely on your skills, but you the, you can pull those things off pretty easy. The thing that changes every single day on every record is the people. And that's the thing that keeps it interesting. And those relationships are what keep me excited about coming in and doing something that maybe it's similar to a record I've already made. Maybe I've been here before, but the people are different and there's so much to learn from new people. They teach you about yourself. They challenge you in new ways. So I don't know. I, yeah, I feel like the, the people thing, that's, you know, we kind of just dove into the meta, but that's really the, the big picture. That's really the thing that kind of drives me and drives my interest in this. So in those scenarios where you have, that you're describing where just like you're getting nowhere with the artist and it's just super difficult. Do you ever start to question if you're the issue? It's done that to me at times. Yeah. Well, well, it, I mean, anyone with any sense of humility would immediately go, is it me? Am I crazy? I, I do this all the time. And it, this usually just, these things just work. What is going, like, what is this? And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe sometimes, I mean, it takes two, it's, you know, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes it is a, a matter bad fit. Of, sometimes it's just a bad fit. Maybe it is just about how you interact with that certain aspect of something that rubs you the wrong way. I, I don't know. People trigger each other in, in, uh, in specific ways sometimes, but yeah, there is definitely that aspect. I, I'll tell you what I, I used to do. I don't know if you're, you're familiar. Are you familiar with the day trotter blog? It's a big, no. big blog in the Early and mid 2000s, based in the Midwest, tons of bands would come through and do these special sessions. Um, two hours in and out, four songs, live, live mixed to two track. So my studio became sort of the Texas outpost during South by Southwest, ACL, Fun 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 Fest, uh, Psych, you know, all, all of the, the big festivals would come through with tons of great bands in town. We would record these sessions. And when you do when you do the sessions like that, where you've got five bands in in a day and two engineers are mixing, it's really interesting to see which ones work and which ones don't. And it's I'm trying to bring this back to the point you said about is it me? Because you can go through ten bands in two or three days doing these sort of guerrilla warfare sessions, and one band you just it just will not work. Sounds that worked, the <laughs> kit sounded great before, guitar tones were great. All the gain staging, everything is just working. The compression on the mix, everything is working. And some band comes in, and you're like, nothing. What happened? What happened? Is it? Is it me? Did I? Is it? Is something out of phase? Are my ears getting tired? And it's it's kind of the same thing with the personality thing. There's just sometimes it's just not the right fit, and and it's not you. And nine times out of ten, or the other nine bands you worked with, everything sounds great, and it's just not. It just doesn't click, you know. And in those cases. I think it's better for those people just to work with people they click with and for me to work with people that I click with, you know? The thing that's scary about those scenarios is, like you said, lots of times everybody knows it, but nobody wants to say it. So when you get hit up by their management to hear about how things are going on, then the question becomes, do you tell the truth or not? Because if you tell the truth, are you becoming a shit starter? Did the manager send that artist to you so that you would babysit them and you would deal with it? Or 
is it important for the manager to know this? And will the manager agree with you? It's like a serious dilemma that I've had to face. Yeah, it's it's definitely an emperor's new clothes thing where it's like, who's going to say it? Is anyone going to say that this person is just a nightmare? Or is everyone, and who knows? Did, does the manager know? Does the agent know? Do the band members kind of know the, the ego trip thing? Or is everyone like, has everyone kind of drank the Kool-Aid and they're on board? Uh, it's very, it's a, it's a really weird thing to, to navigate. I had to do that a little bit with, I mean, here's another thing. When, when a band over the course of making a record has gone through multiple managers, uh-huh. <laughs> bad sign. <laughs> it's well, definitely one common not you. When you, yeah, when you see those things happening, you're like, you know what? It's not me. This band has had four managers in the last year. I don't think it's me. Yeah, definitely not you. The, the thing is that, uh, I've had it go both ways, like where I talked to the manager and the manager was like, I know they're a total pain in the ass. Just uh, do your best to get through it. We're on your side. And other times where I've said it and it completely backfired on me. Yep. One time where a band was like injecting drugs in my guest room and leaving needles on the floor and like just wow yeah yeah really bad next level bad next level bad trashing the place and like bringing drug dealers to the studio and all kinds of stuff shit you don't want and uh the needles in the carpet and i have a dog oh come on man that's a line you don't cross so i talked to the management about that i felt like that was a that was not drama starting. So that's a legit reason to talk to the management. And that bringing that up ruined my relationship with that management. However, with that same management, with a couple other artists or one other artist who was a total pain in the ass, I brought it up and they were like, yeah, yeah, we know. Just deal with it. Yeah, they know. More often than not, I find that they know. And it's like, hey, man, you know what? They're hard. I've had other hard artists. I have 10 other artists that are easy. And they know. And they know. Yeah, it's a it's a weird game to play. I I had to, you know, the other thing is is, you know, I I'm sure this is the same with you. You you get better at spotting, you know, you you listen to the Spidey sense, the red flags go off early on and you just kind of go like, yeah, I don't think this one's for me. But sometimes people slip by the radar or they say the right things, the manager says the right things, the band says the right things. They seem like someone you'd totally like to work with. And they get in and it, you know, it's kind of like dating. Like people kind of keep their crazies locked up on the first few dates. And then they, they start slowly sneaking <laughs> out there. They start, start, you know, you, you get a little taste of, of what's under the hood. And it's like, oh man, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. Like this is, you guys kind of bait and switched me on this. You're, you're nightmares. But I, you know, I don't know. I try to, you know, for me, sometimes you're too far in and you just go, I have to just see this thing through. It's going to be, I got to, I got to make my way through this record and I need to find something that maybe there's a challenging personality, but there's some, something about this record that I try to focus on and go, I'm going to really focus on this and try to learn this and master this one thing and use this as an opportunity to learn and try to set the personal stuff aside or whatever. And you know, fi- find the thing that brings you joy in your day. Ultimately, if the people are, you know, if it's not your, if it's not your cup of tea, you know, you got to find the thing that that gets you through it. I think that the mark of a producer who's going to keep getting repeated work from a manager or a label is the person who can just get the job done, even if the band's a nightmare. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. 
There is. I mean, I have, there's only, I can only think of one record in 17, 18 years that I've, that I've had to stop mid record and go, I just cannot do this. I cannot, I just can't go back in the room one more day for this. So, you know, it's, it's tough, but you know, there, there is also a threshold and I would put the, you know, the, the hypodermic needle in the carpet move. I'm like that, that would be in that territory for me too. I'm like, I'm just not, I'm not doing this. This is, this is like, I'm not here for this. And I'm, I don't want to get like brought into your world with that. And I don't want you to bring that world into my house, my studio, my dogs here, whatever it is. That's a band that burned down a house they lived in and killed somebody. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Before that. So, Oh wow. Wow. Yeah, I think I, I think I was justified. Yeah, yeah, that is wow. It's wild, wild, wild personalities in this. But you know, like I said, that's sort of the that's sort of the fun, you know, because you know you you mic up the same guitar amp enough times, or or you know that part. The engineering becomes sort of an invisible part of the process when you've done it so much. It's getting the sounds and shaping sounds that becomes like almost an intuitive thing, and and it is more about the just the way you sort of interact and hopefully get some joy out of your day doing this, you know? The thing that I've noticed is that my my ability to spot crazy has gone up considerably. Oh, sure. And one thing that I learned how to do is to spot who the crazy one is in the band and not feed their crazy. Oh, yeah. Number one, getting that sense that you're like, this is this is the person, and then also kind of figuring out which way to navigate to avoid it and not trigger it and not, you know, antagonize it. Things can stay on a level if you keep people in their happy place. So figuring out whatever that happy place is for people is a huge part of of doing this. Yeah. Like if they're a paranoid type, for instance, because, you know, there's quite a few of those out there, but like if, and I've seen this in bands quite a bit, they're like a paranoid person that's on the border of a mental illness or who already is uh, starting to get into that. There are certain conversations you can have with a normal person that won't cause any fireworks to go off where if you have it with a super paranoid person, it just starts this uh, this snowball. And just being able to, to feel that out to where you never go there, oftentimes those people can be super easy to work with just as long as you avoid the grenade, the landmines basically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, but that's, uh, there's so much psychiatry and therapy, you know, experience. There's, there's so much self-awareness that goes into all of that and knowing that and being aware of it, it's, it's a huge thing. I mean, there's, there's a moment, there's a, you know, like, let's say it's a, it's a new artist you're working with. You can tell they're maybe a little anxious about the thing. Maybe it's not full on Maybe there aren't uh, mental health issues. It's not that kind of spidey sense. Just nerves. Even just nerves, which is a huge thing. You know, young bands are not super experienced. They have high expectations and they're not really, you know, they're second guessing themselves. There's There's a moment, you know, someone like lays down the first take or first vocal. You come on on the talk back. What do you say right there in that moment? And if you don't have reverence for that moment and understand the importance of how critical the first thing that comes out of your mouth at the end of that is and what kind of tone that sets, then you're, you're absolutely missing the big picture of how you get the best out of people if you, if you want to get the best takes. And, and that's what you're getting at is how do you take someone who you recognize these, there may be some issues or sensitivities there, and how do you 
sort of just wiggle around those to pull the best out of them. And, uh, you know, it just takes a lot of self-awareness. Have you ever seen Interstellar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just said there is a moment a few times. Okay. <laughs> so I kept thinking of the Matt Damon, there is a moment scene. Oh, that's great. Which if anyone hasn't seen it, I'm not going to say what it is, but it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful scene. Yeah, that's a good little Easter egg <laughs> in there. I, yeah, I must I have love been channeling the, that. There is a moment is, I saw it in the theater, in an IMAX theater, uh-huh. and it, that part was just like such a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. We will, Anyways. Let's, not, let's not spoil it. <laughs> yeah, let's not spoil it. I may need to loop back on that one. Oh, it's a great movie. So on the topic of bands that are, that it's not mental illness, it's just nerves, you know, sure. which is totally yeah. natural. Uh, one thing that you said is about baby bands or first timers is that uh, they second guess themselves, but and they have high hopes, sometimes I feel like their expectations are kind of, it's it's a weird thing for me to say because I believe in dreaming big. Like I have super unrealistic goals I always have. That's why I've been able to accomplish things is because I set my goals way higher than what's realistic. Sure. And then when you fail at that goal, it's, it's you've still, I mean, you're still- You still did all right. Ahead. Yeah, you're doing great. Yeah, yeah totally. But, but that said- Oftentimes, new artists will have completely unrealistic goals about what's possible in the studio. And that that's a real tough topic for me to to broach because at because you know, I do believe in dreaming big, but at the same time, how do you keep the dream alive in the studio while also helping them understand what's actually realistic? Yeah, yeah, so for me, that starts before we're in the studio and that and that has to do with. That's in, you know, I would lump that in the pre-production phase of sort of getting a beat on what the expectations are and making sure that we're all sort of on the same page with what's actually feasible with whatever practical limitations we've got of schedule or budget or whatever it may be. But, I, you know, one, one thing that's important to me is to, especially with young artists, is to not be too quick to bring down the pre- the hammer of schedules, budgets, timelines, or practical limitations with something someone's dreaming, you have to let, especially young artists, you have to let them say those things, dream those things, and try to lift that up, if you can, before you bring down the 10 reasons why it'd be easier just to do it this other way. I think that's a really important thing. Now, it it may not be feasible to do those things, but at least if you've recognized that that person has those dreams and expectations and know what they're talking about, you can start making it a conversation and a collaborative thing where you can shape it together and maybe come up with a solution for how do you achieve something that's hints at that, but we've only got these four days to get this one thing done. So what can we do to try to get there? within just within the reality i i but i am i am conscious of not bringing that in too quick because i want people to feel like they've had a chance to sort of get that off their chest and speak their mind and then all all of that would be and none of none of this is happening in the studio day one this is i i like to try to calibrate people on that and have some of those reality check conversations a few weeks before so you know it's not like a bummer on the first day of tracking when someone goes yeah, you got that idea? Okay, well, let me tell you 10 reasons why we can't do it like that, and we got to just go, and we're just going to do it with the house kit, and we're just going to bash through this. It, it feels dismissive. So, you know, ho- hopefully, there's a, there, hopefully there's a creative way where you can, 
accommodate somehow but and allow them to dream big, but then start kind of funneling the reality into the situation as you're getting closer to the sessions. What are some of the unrealistic things that you feel like you sometimes need to funnel down to reality? Well, you know, certain grandiose tracking plans. We want to have this massive, whatever it is, I don't know, horn section, string section, some massive thing come in or something, or often what it is actually is someone has a reference or a number of references. Maybe it's a record they love. It's a guitar tone they love. It's a drum thing that they they want to go for, a sound they want to go for, whatever it is. And the ability does not match yeah. where those players are. That's the one that is kind of omnipresent on every, that's not newbie specific. That's just, that's just the reality of wanting to do something that's virtuosic and amazing, but not quite being there. You know, that being said, I I feel, I feel like it's important for bands to be patient with themselves and with uh, the process and to know that you have to make a few records to get better at making records. It's not something you just come out the first time you, you know, you don't just land all of your hopes and dreams of your whole life on your first big record. Like it, it takes a while to understand the process and understand how to, how to achieve more and which areas to dream big in. I feel like bands, and sometimes my vision, I want a band to push further than they are willing to actually commit and go. And so it happens on, on both ends. But I do feel like bands often make the record they deserve at that time. And that sometimes, as much as I, I may want to take this thing further, it's like, you're going to do that on the next record. You're going to get there. You need to tour a lot more. You need to get way tighter. You need to like practice. You guys need to do the things that make you as good as these bands that you want to sound like. That The reality is... is You're not there yet. You're, not, you're just not there yet. And, and that's okay, because it, it's hard. Uh, that reminds me of what a friend of mine who's a wedding photographer tells me about feedback he gets from photo shoots because oftentimes he'll take wedding photos and he'll get feedback like, can you Photoshop my arm to look thin? <laughs> Make it look like I weigh 40 pounds less or something. It's like, dude and dudette, like, this is what you look like. Yep. This is you through Photoshop and editing and like, my amazing camera abilities. This is you. Like if you wanted to look better, should have started that diet six months ago. Yeah. That's not, not six days ago. That's it's, it's a very, it's a very similar sort of sort of thing that I think then it kind of goes back to that self-awareness you were talking about. Oftentimes I think people are not aware of their own level and they're not aware of the level that the people that they look up to are at either because they're new at it. They just don't, they just don't really understand. Like one thing that happens in the metal world that's pretty common on the topic of references is people will, will have like a budget to do like a week and like try to record an album in a week. And then they'll reference an album that had like a $70,000 budget and was done in like two and a half months with like, a band that's on their fifth album with the producer that's like done like 25 of the latest, greatest metal records in the game. And so what are you, it's not going to sound like that. No, no, it's not. You're not that band. It isn't this producer, like you're not there yet. But that's why it's good to start. I think it's good to start talking about expectations before you're in the studio. I completely agree. 
it just helps everyone. You can avoid that deflated moment where people realize, A, maybe they aren't that good. Maybe their tone isn't that good. Maybe the song, maybe the part isn't that good when you hear it played back and everyone knows it in the room. But unfortunately, there's a lot of self-worth tied up in those lofty goals, especially for younger folks. And I think having that moment where you realize that your budget that's one-tenth the budget of the record that you're referencing and that your abilities aren't there, those things are just, it's kind of a lot to swallow. And I'm, I'm not necessarily hitting it straight on. I, I like to be gentle with people on that and kind of recalibrating and going, hey, I love those sounds, but I mean, they probably spent a week just getting those sounds on for that drum sound. Like, I, you know, that's that's a whole different level of process. And we have to kind of, I, I like to I like to spoon feed that a little bit early on so people can digest it because it's it's a lot to it's a lot to swallow. And I don't want to do it on day one of recording where everyone feels deflated. You know, you know, what's tough about that? The budget argument is that you never want people to feel like they're getting less no, or feel bad for because what they've they can't got. Pay. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, maybe maybe the seven thousand dollar budget for the record that cost a tenth of the big one they're trying to copy, maybe that's an incredible amount of money to that band, and it took a lot. Uh, you know, playing a lot of shows, doing a lot of tour, whatever, to raise that. Without a doubt, you know, this is another area where me coming from being a musician, touring, doing that, I really appreciate when I when I see someone, uh, you know. I mean, I, everything's Venmo now, but I mean, I used to get paid if bands would give me, you know, wadded up fives. And it's like, man, this is straight up merch money that you guys have been earning for a year of shows. And you're handing out this to be in here for a week. You got to have some reverence for it and not make people feel bad for what they've worked so hard to to earn, you know? Absolutely. And also, I don't want them to feel like them paying less means that they get less out of me even right. though it does mean a lot less time. I don't want them to feel like uh, they get less of a mental investment. Sure. So it's a hard argument to use, but it's totally true. Like the budget is what allows you to, to take the time to do things a certain way. It just gives you so many more options on what you're going to go for. Yeah. I mean, that said, I, I did have an experience late last year. I, I did a record of this band, Pure X, and we did the entire thing. We did 14 songs to two inch, which is, you know, slow. It's not as fast as working on Pro Tools. It, you got to wait for text yeah. to rewind and you can't just do a quick punch. It doesn't work that way. We did 14 tunes in six days and it turned out so good. But, you know, I was, I was really concerned about the timeline. They're just like, no, we want to keep it raw. And, and they were into it being raw and keeping the mixes rough and having sort of a you know, more organic feel. And that was a, a case where I was nervous. I was the one concerned about the budget going, I don't know if I can deliver what we're trying to do in that amount of time. And we went into it and with the expectations of going, hey, we're going to keep this a little loose and raw. It was great. So it is a little bit about framing. You can get great results out of the limited budget as long as you are sort of dialed in on what you're going for. And and maybe, you know, in, in Pure X's case, it's just going, it's just going, we want this to be a little more raw and accepting that that's part of the thing. Not, not only accepting, but going, that'll make it interesting in a certain way and go, you know, if we're not going to be in the, the Lexus, then I'll, we'll just drive the 20 year old Honda Accord. We're fine with that. And, and we like it and it's got character, you know, instead of trying, trying to buy a, uh, 
I don't know where this analogy is going, buy a, you know, a used version of it and, and sort of be disappointed with some clunker. It's just like sort of accepting where it's, you know, where you're clocking in at with the budget and trying to just get good results out of it regardless, you know? When you start having those conversations in advance, first of all, how far in advance and uh, what are the kinds of things that you cover? Like, for instance, one thing that I would always do is like four months in advance, have a drummer send me a picture of his setup because I needed to see, or her setup, I needed to see how high the cymbals were off oh, yeah. of the shells because uh, some of these metal drummers like to bunch everything together and make it impossible to mic. I know. it's And it's part of how they play so fast and articulately, but it's because everything's just like right there within arm's reach. I'm like, I can't even get a mic in there. Even if I could, it's all, it's all going to be crash cymbal. Then they say they want a natural sound. Yeah. Yeah, they want all natural drums, but they're set up in a way to where replacement is the only option. So yeah. So I'll... I'll work with them in advance, get them to raise their cymbals, spread things out, work with me on this. You want a more natural sound. This is how we're going to get one. Less bleed, more separation, like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Can actually position mics properly. Like, we're working on this together. So if you raise your cymbals now and practice like this now, it's not going to be a shock when you get in. Conversations like that. Yeah, that's just about working together to actually achieve the goal, which is which is the thing. You can't just show up with your kid all clustered up like that and go, I, I want it to sound like this. I'm like, come on, you got to work with me on this. You know, it, it is it is a collaborative process. I mean, I think that's great you start that early because if what you're asking for is for people to relearn and sort of adjust their playing to accommodate, then, you know, you, that's another thing. You can't just spring that on day one and go, No, hey, you can't. By the way... We're going to put this total different kick drum in here and we're going to raise your cymbals three feet. And you got to you gotta give people some time with that. Doing that is asking for things to go wrong. I think so too. I mean, an important thing to me, to, and, and I, I start around then is when, you know, generally three to four months out, we're, we're looking at putting stuff on the schedule. So that means we're sharing demos. We're talking about references. We're talking about song structure, arrangement choices, tonal choices. All, all those things going into it. But I guess with the prep thing, beyond just, you know, adjusting your setup, I like to start having the conversation about, hey, just just because that's your kit, we may not be using every piece of that drum kit. Or just because you love those pedals live or that cab live, we may actually use like a tighter cab for, you know, we're not, we're not trying to reach the back of the room for the recording. We may we may be substituting some things here and, you know, base and whatever it is, just even on the furthest zoomed out level of just going, hey, we may not be using all of your instruments just the way they sound, as they sound. Um, I may have something here that will will get you the sound you want easier, better, whatever. You know, it's just it's just about getting people, giving people time to think about all those things, you know? Yeah, when you're trading the demos and say that you start to spot some unrealistic stuff or stuff that you know is not going to work. How do you gently redirect so that people don't start thinking that you're a no man uh, from the start? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a good question. I I mean the the place to the place to start always, and this is sort of referencing that moment that I was talking about, the moment where the talkback comes on after the first pass or the first take or the first vocal 
the place to start for me is by praising the good. It's sort of like with my dog. You don't just, you know, spanking the dog when they, they do something bad. They never understand what's good and what they, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's really basic. They have no idea what the hell's going on. <laughs> no, there's just a basic behavioral thing of going, leading off with something that they did really well that's encouraging often is the place to, it puts people at ease immediately rather than you coming out with negative, with criticism, as constructive as it may be. Again, maybe someone's anxious, maybe someone there's some mental health issues there and you hit someone hard with the wrong kind, wrong tone, wrong criticism, whatever it is. And, you know, it it can really backfire on you and you've kind of lost a, a moment to earn their trust. So, yeah, the first thing is praise the good and then let's talk about some of the other things that I'm hearing. Um, you know, wondering if you guys are, and, and often postulating rather than saying, this section's bad, this turnaround is bad, there needs to be some kind of base movement in here to, to you know, the transition's not working, whatever. Instead of just hammering down on it going, would you guys be open to exploring, so like, reworking that bridge? Are you guys open to doing this? Are you? If you say yes, then we can talk and I can share my thoughts. But at least it's sort of a bit more of, you know, how, how open are you? And that and once you get in there, and people go, oh, yeah, no, we're, we're open to exploring that. Okay, great. Well, I've got some other thoughts, too, if you guys are, are, are down to hear them. You know, I think that takes a little bit of the, um, the dynamic of me judging out of it and it makes it more conversational. And I mean, that's, that's the place to go for me. Conversational instead of adversarial. Yeah. Instead of me going, I, I'm the guy that's, I'm, I'm Oz that sits behind this glass window and I just <laughs> go, nope, not good. Nope. You could do that better. That should be better. That section's, it's, no one wants to work with that guy. It's too much time to be in the room with, with people making a record. And it's, uh, you want to spend it with people who are who get what you're going for and are encouraging of it, you know? Older school producers were known for being monsters. Yeah. A lot more about this stuff. But the thing that's interesting to me about that is it's not like the psychology of musicians and artists has changed. In my opinion, it's the same as it ever was. I bet if you took a musician from the 1600s, they would have a similar psychology. Obviously, different circumstance, but similar artistic temperament as an artist now. So to think that artists in the 70s or 80s or 90s were different kinds of people than artists now is kind of dumb. Yeah. We don't evolve that fast. So that said, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, producers are known to be monsters uh, a lot of the time. Why did that work then? And why does it not work now? Well, I, I'll tell you exactly why. And I've thought about this a lot because I am a music history. I'm psycho for music. My studio is just filled with music history books. And I'm fascinated by that. Um, it worked that way because they needed to match the ego of the rock star. We don't really live in a time of rock stars. Super successful musicians for me now are, maybe they're, they're, they're not, we're not living in a time of, eccentric virtuosic rock stars it's more bands are are uh it's a different time and and the producers i think back then needed to match a level of bravado and eccentricity and ego and they had that was sort of their brand back then in a time when there was a lot of money in the music industry which fueled a lot of ego i mean it really just fueled the whole system for rock stars to become gigantic, I mean, just huge rock stars. And I think the producers 
of that time felt like they needed to bring that same level of persona, ego, whatever their brand is to the table, and they got work because of it. Nowadays, we are living in a world where there is way less money in the music industry. And super successful musicians, in my opinion, are, are not, I mean, there are still the, you know, the, the fraction of 1% upper crust radio bands, but it's a different world to be in a moderately successful band now. Uh, you might still go home from tour and have to pick up work doing something, you know, and you could go out and play in front of a lot of people, but we don't have an infrastructure of record sales that fuels that sort of uh, inflated persona that the 70s and 80s that they people thrived on. So I think there's a little more humility in, in our world of music now. And I think that the people who are still here are not doing it for the money and the fame and the flash and the success. They are doing it because they love it for the most part. I mean, you can po point holes and poke holes in, in either side of that. But for the most part, I think the people that are in the music industry now are here because they're passionate and because they love music or they love the arts. And I think back then there was a lot more money and a lot more flash and, and it attracted a very different kind of personality to those roles of, and that, that name producer. Yeah. I mean, I guess, how are you going to get somebody that's that over the top with their uh, narcissism and ego to listen to you if you're not matching their level? Sure. Well, it's like the Phil Spector thing. It's like, I've heard those recordings where there's outtakes where he's working with the Beatles and just hearing him go back and forth with John Lennon on the talkback, it's like, this isn't even about this song. This is about both of you trying to prove who's who's the big dog in the room. And there is an element to that that, like, I don't know. I mean, listen, I mean, those guys are, you know, selling millions of records, so what do I know? But, you know, they're just living in a different time, and they're kind of living in an ego fantasy trip world. You know, maybe it served them. I'm sure it served them. I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. But nowadays, coming in guns blazing with, uh, you know, with that kind of attitude, I feel like it would be really alienating because artists are just not, we just don't have that infrastructure in the music business anymore. Yeah, I think that uh, in the past, there was enough money to put up with things. Like, for instance, people would also put up with lots of bad drug habits. It's not that sure. people don't do drugs now. I mean, I mean, you always hear about people ODing, but it's much more in the shadows. And it's it's not like, man, I watched some DVDs from like tour DVDs from the 90s and 80s, and some bands are like injecting right there. Straight on, up, uh, on camera. On camera, like oh, yeah. no big deal with just like having fun and that kind of stuff, that whole lifestyle, it's not that it doesn't happen, but it's not really, it's kind of frowned upon and yeah. people don't like to work with junkies. There's not enough money to justify it. I think in the past there was so much money to be made. Like I just read Duff McKagan's autobiography. Holy shit. That band was worse than I thought they were when it comes to, I didn't. I didn't realize the like level, the depths, of it. the depths of drug abuse that was going on in Guns N' Roses. It's way beyond what the media was portraying when sure. I was a kid, and that already, it was already portrayed as a whole hell of a lot. But the level of it was just insane. That book's really good, by the way. But uh, anyways, my point being, Guns N' Roses made so much money for so many people that 
I'm sure that the business minds were like, we'll just figure out a way to deal with this. Sure. Get enough handlers, get them their drugs, get them their hookers, get them whatever the fuck they need. They're making so much cash, nobody nobody do anything to shake yeah. this up because we're all feeding off of it. I mean, the same thing in recent years. I mean, it's the same thing with Amy Winehouse. You know, that's, I mean, a different world. But it's not that it doesn't happen, but it is something that is sort of relegated to an area of music where the excess in, in that department generally matches some extreme amount of money that we're talking about. You know, we just don't live in that world anymore. Records come out more or less for, for diehard fans. They're buying vinyl on, on tour. People are downloading. But, you know, the physical sales have slowed down. The streaming thing hasn't replaced that gap of, you know, physical product sales. And uh, we don't have the cash that record sales accounted for really lubricated the whole system. It made the whole thing flow um, for better or for worse. Because, you know, on the, you know, like with, with this end, you're talking about the extreme, extreme excess where the whole thing, I mean, look at like Van Halen or, uh, you know, Motley Crue, Guns N' Roses, those, just the excess of, that they were able to tap into, we're just not there at this point. In music. We're just not. That's, no. th- those just aren't. It's just not where it is. And and there has been a cultural shift. I think in in you know in the last 20, 30 years, there's been a cultural shift of talking about mental health, talking about drug abuse, uh, alcohol abuse. It's not celebrated the way it was going from late 70s all the way through the 90s. I mean, we've lost too many important people to suicide and overdoses and. It's not a cool thing to be an excessive junkie drug addict rock star. That's not like cool. That's actually a good thing. That's a very good thing. I remember in the 90s, they made heroin addiction look cool in the yeah, media. Sure. And I remember, like, I remember that uh, Axl Rose would talk about being bipolar, and that got turned into like, this is no diss towards anyone who's bipolar. It's a serious condition. But it was made out to be like this cool artistic thing. Like, ooh, Axl Rose like, is bipolar. He's so much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird. You don't see that anymore. <laughs> no, you don't see that anymore. People are like, oh, should we get him help? Should we pull him off the road for a little while? Should we get him out of the, out of the spotlight? No. Back then it was like, this is going to be a catastrophic, massive colossal crazy event let's put him on stage and film it yep <laughs> exactly so i i think that uh the musicians coming in really should realize this and not get too big for their britches basically i think that that's something i'm noticing among a lot of successful musicians these days is they're not too big for their britches and i think that when they are that tends to limit their careers from the get-go because people don't want to be around that. They're afraid of it. Yeah. No, I don't want to. I don't, I don't want to be around it. I don't want to make that record. I'll, I'll just work with someone who is great to spend my days with. I'd way yeah. rather spend my time doing that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, it's, it's a good shift. In general, I feel like the shift of being able to talk, I mean, even us today being able to talk about drug abuse and uh, alcohol abuse, mental health, it's just not taboo anymore, and it's okay that people are taking are addressing that, you know, head on. It's great. It's been good for the music biz. Yeah, I completely agree. I can't believe the kind of stuff that was normalized when I was growing up that was made to look cool. It's 
is really, really bad at the time. It's disturbing. Yeah. I didn't realize what a negative influence it was. And I thought that, you know, parents were just being assholes about it. But now looking back, it's pretty disturbing the messages that they were sending young people about what kind of behavior is acceptable. Yeah. Well, you know, one, one good thing about us growing and becoming more self-aware as a people in 2020, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of 2020, how's, uh, how's 2020 affecting you? Well, my band, Other Lives, had a record come out a couple months ago, and I had five weeks of touring that got pulled off the schedule last minute. So mm-hmm. um, not ideal, but we've been able to uh, do live sessions through social media, do all kinds of stuff to essentially try to try to get out there and at least put what we've created out there. But uh, I was expecting to be on the road quite a bit uh, more this year, and uh, that's not happening. So f- fortunately, right, right when our, I got word that our tour was being pulled the end of March, a ton of mix work came in, and my world has just, I've just been deep into the mixing world. I've been doing some, because we haven't had people in, you know, people haven't been tracking. I've done a a number of things where I'm sending tracks. I'll record on people's records. I'll send them tracks. They'll work on it. They'll send me something back to mix. People are just having to get a little more crafty with how we're going to collaborate and continue to work and be productive and and do our thing, you know. But it's been a little weird because I thrive on interacting with people and it becomes less of the job. It's more, you know, it's more just time with my head between speakers, which is a little strange, you know? It's interesting that you say that because so many people I have on are complete introverts. <laughs> so, so many people who come on are like, this is great. Business as usual. Don't have yeah. to go anywhere, talk to anybody, just get to mix all day. And I've gone heavy with the podcast since COVID started, like three a week. So that's talking to a lot of people. It and is. I'd say only 10% of them have been like, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I may, I may not be on the, you know, I, I, I may be on the extreme end of, of, uh, of that though. I mean, I know a lot of people are very happy just to stay in their sweet spot, do their thing, work the hours that work for them, send the revisions out and it's smooth sailing. But, you know, like I said before, it doing it just to do it, just to mix, uh, you know, you've mixed enough records. I've mixed enough records. The thrill of doing it just to do it, it's, you know, it, there's a point where without the interaction, it feels more, more like work to me. It's like a little less fun to not have people in here. I also come at this from more of a kind of old school producer stance. And I, I think, I think that's probably where, you know, that's probably why I'm on, I'm on that, uh, I'm on that side of it. I'm, I'm the one, I'm the one guy for the other 30 you talk to that's like, no, I wish people were coming in and we could, I don't know, have more fun. So you said that you're like recording stuff and sending it to them. I am. I've heard of some people doing like remote production sessions where they'll be on like Skype. What are you doing to, I guess, be crafty and make it as, as close to the real thing as possible, knowing that it's not going to be the same until this shit's over. Right. Yeah. We've got a pretty crafty setup where I can video Skype um, I can either share my, I can either video and film and they can be there watching and we can interact or I can screen share. I did a session last week where I have figured out how to patch out of our headphone system. So my, my uh, talkback works, which is great. 
and it doesn't blast through the speakers. They get a, a, a sense of what the actual mix is, what the parts are I'm playing. And then I've got them on a separate fader on my headphone system. So it's pretty much just like having someone in there, except for they're, they're like a little grainier. Um, but it's, it's crazy how instantaneous it is. I can lay something down and, and uh, someone goes, hey, how about, uh, can we try like a couple different fills going into that thing? Or can we try this other feel right here? You know, I'm in the booth either way. My assistant's out here and, you know, engineering. If someone's on the couch or they're on the laptop, I'm still in the booth in the exact same spot laying stuff down. So it, it, that hasn't actually really changed um, that much. Um, you know, the thing that I, I miss is having a full band in and, you know, tracking the tape and doing the whole thing and, and building from the ground up because I've been, I've just been mixing like crazy. It's like all mix work lately. So I'm thirsting for that side of it where you're getting into new songs and doing, you know, massively changing songs the way a song is presented, the way the, the whole album feels from the get-go rather than just going like, okay, I got another record to mix. I got to start that one in two weeks. For me, having the variety and, and doing some tracking, producing, having bands in, mixing, that's what keeps it fun to me and not feeling like I'm just showing up to the office to do the same thing every day. So I'm I'm missing having the the experience of having the band in, but... You know, for the meantime, I'm very thankful that my schedule is filled with a ton of mix work because there's a lot of people that are hurting right now. Not not just in our world, but, you know, in the film world. In and the all, world. All, in, in the world. Yeah, everywhere. So, you know, having having any amount of work, I'm, I'm very thankful that that uh, that I've been able to stay busy, especially since my plan with the other lives touring is kind of for the for the rest of the year has kind of been thrown out the window. So. Interesting talking to you because you're in Texas and, you yeah. know, the news says one thing about Texas, but sounds to me like it, your life is somewhat still shut down. We are very shut down. Yeah, Texas, what you hear about Texas is that nobody cares and business as usual, fuck it. There's just, yeah, there's so there's so much of the, the there's like this thing Texans have. I don't know if this stems from like Texas being its own country at one point. Texans are like proud of Texas. I mean, it is the size of Germany. It's huge. Yeah, it it is massive. You can drive from where I'm at in Austin 10 hours west and still and just hit El Paso. And there's all of the other side of Texas getting to Louisiana on the other side. So you you got about 16 hours to drive across Texas. I, Texas are proud of it. I don't know. I, it's a weird thing, but there's also there's also this old school thing here where people, and it's not, I mean, it's not just Texas, but there's a thing where people in particular feel very much infringed upon if they're asked to do anything that's outside of the way they do it or the way that their daddy did it or the way their grandpa did it. And they feel like it's like you're treading on their liberties by having to having to wear the mask. I know this is a divisive thing. I don't even want to get into that, but there's yeah, been a lot yeah, of we'll, there's we'll been a leave lot the politics of resi- out of it. Yeah, there's been a lot of resistance to the mask wearing in Texas, and there's been a lot of sort of not clear direction from the governor. So it's it's just which has only fueled the people going, I I don't need to shut my business down or I don't need to stay home. And then of course it spreads. So um so it's 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 bad here, 
it's bad in Florida. There's a number of places it's especially bad. And, and yeah, bad things in are, California. Things are very much shut down here. Whether people adhere to it or not is a whole other thing. The reason I'm bringing it up is not for political reasons. I actually don't talk about politics on here. Yeah. It's because I have seen some studio people that I know recording. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm not going to call you out. You know, it's your choice. But I don't know if I'd be comfortable bringing musicians who I don't know where they've been in to work with me face to face at this point. But also I'm a little more paranoid than most people, but it seems like you're not, you're not doing that. We're not doing that yet. We've, I'll I'll tell you what I've had. I've had maybe two sessions where it was me and one person in working on a Mm -hmm. tune and maybe we're just finishing some overdubs and they're not crowding my space and it's, you know, I feel feel fine with it, but um, for the most part, yeah, we're we're still we're still not. You know, I don't. I like you said, I don't know if if one of the guys in the band has been, you know, still works at a a food delivery place and he's interacting with thirty people a day and fifty people a day, two hundred people. I don't know. You know, if someone's a bartender, there's a lot of a lot of service industry in the music world, and uh, those people are in contact with a lot of folks and. You know, it's nothing personal, but I, I don't know if one of the one of them had it. I don't, you know, it's just one of those things. It's just not something I'm going to play around with. Yeah, that makes sense. So as far as the mixing work goes, what is the typical turnaround now? Like, has your turnaround gotten faster because there's less stuff going on production-wise? I don't know if the turnaround has necessarily gotten faster. I think my schedule has just piled up the way it used to on the mix side. It's about, it. for me, it's about the same, but yeah, it did there, you know, it, it took a little while to get that padded out the way I am when I'm able to track and mix and do all these different things. And obviously there's a lot more, a lot more projects to work on. There's a lot more calendar days to fill. What role does your assistant play when it comes to mixing? Max is, you know, I, I don't even like calling him an assistant because he's worked with me for seven years and Okay, yeah. Everything. I mean, he's like a partner to me, you know, really. Yep, okay. But with mixing, mixing is sort of an insular thing. You know, it's not something that two people are doing oftentimes. But, you know, when you when you need that second set of ears and you're like, I did this mix, I think it's cool. Are those guitars too harsh? Is there too much 2K in that? Is this, you know, is this muddy in your room? That sort of thing. I It's, it's really important for me to get feedback. And I, I rely on him probably too much for that. Um, but I, I really appreciate having a second set of ears that I trust in a room that I trust. He's, he's also got a mix room and he's got great ears. So I, you know, that's, it's just the, it's just the bounce in the mix to, to someone else to go, Hey, before I send this out, is there anything like, is this sticking out to you or. So does he do any prep work or any of that kind of stuff for you? Occasionally. Yeah. When I get sessions in, it depends, you know, on, you know, the first thing I do when I get when I get a hard drive or I get files is open it up to see what kind of spider web of insanity I'm in for. <laughs> Sometimes people have sort of sort of already quote unquote mixed and they're sending me a session and I have to untangle the web. In that case, Max is great at going like, hey, I got rid of all this insane busing and these crazy effects that are routed. And this is this is cleaned up. Too many people watching nail the mix. And yeah. <laughs> this is one of the uh <laughs> the unintended consequences of nail the mix is uh that we'll get beginners who will watch something super advanced and then try to do it before they're ready and then send it to somebody like yeah with 
all kinds of weird parallel buses and like parallel bus and the buses that go nowhere. And you're like, what? Yeah. Is this? Buses into buses next to other buses into other buses. And that none of are it's labeled. All, yeah. Forget about it. <laughs> none yeah. of it's labeled. Yeah. You know, that, that said, you know, sometimes, I mean, it, I'm sure it's the same for you. Some, sometimes the mixed gig is ground up. I've got waves. I'm starting from zero. I'm rebuilding the session. I just set it up the way I mix and, and we're off to the races. Sometimes you're hired to mix when someone else has already gone pretty far and they figured out that that's not going to work. Someone in the band was going to mix it, whatever. And you inherit, yeah, you inherit there. It tells you a lot about people's personality, actually, looking at their sessions. I, I love, I actually love looking at it because it's interesting to see what what people did. But it can be tough, man. It can be really tough if if uh, if they've gone too far with it. If they've gone too far with it and they basically sent you a session with plugins and they kind of mixed it into a corner, like, you know, like there's, it's too complicated of a setup to be able to fix problems or anything, but it kind of has a sound. It's kind of like the beginnings of a vision. Yeah. How do you fix it without erasing that vision oh man that is the absolute hardest question you just nailed one of the hardest things if there's like there's already kind of a vibe but you can't really change it or at all it's propped up with like toothpicks like it's like about to crumble but it like but it kind of works it already almost resembles the thing that's really tough that's really tough i think the move is to try to figure out what is creating the vibe what can i take from this what can i what's the the absolute distill it to the absolute core of what is making that work and try to incorporate some of that and ditch the rest of this stuff. Because sometimes it is, there is something good there. And, you know, I, I get sessions from people that, that home record sometimes and you're like, man, this is absolutely insane sounding, but it's like working. Yeah. That's a really, it's a really tough one. I think you got to just take what's working and, and do your thing. Cause otherwise the mix takes so long. If you're trying to work around someone else's, nomenclature, uh, bussing, all the terminology, like all the plugins, the gain structures, all like completely screwy. Like it's just so hard to get any work done. And, uh, I I don't want to work like that. I I think you gotta, you gotta, you gotta do the thing that you do. And that's hopefully why people are working with you, you know? Yeah. I completely understand. I guess the only downfall is what if they get attached to the roughs? What, What do you do? Did you say what if or when or they when are they 100,000 yeah, right. definitely attached to the roughs that they also yeah. don't like, but they love? That's the tricky thing. Yeah, it's such a weird situation. It's so weird. But, you know, here's here's the challenging thing is, is we can get there as mixers or as uh, engineers, producers as well, because we can get sort of entrenched in our, our world. And it's important to recognize in yourself, too, because I can get defensive about a mix and go, man, you guys are... Revision by revision, you are turning this into Swiss cheese and it's turning into a, it's, it's not, it, now we're in this weird uncanny valley version of the mix that's neither your thing or mine. And it's, ba- and it's like bad. Sterile. It's bad. Yeah. And it's, you know, when I start getting rec- like uh, mix revisions where people are making suggestions to like limiter settings to me, I'm like, okay, I'm not listening to that guy because that's just you trying to hold on to the way that you did it. And I, I, I have to do it my way because the, the happy, ba- there is no happy balance. I, and I think that this happens a lot of times in music in an effort to sort of compromise, uh, people will sort of go half and half on something. And 
a lot of times it's not better than doing one of those fully and committing to it. Um, so my, my, my goal with, if I'm going to give on the mix side and go, okay, we're going to like, let's say I send a mix out and bands like, we really, we want this like way different. My initial instinct is like, well, that's wrong. But then you start thinking about it and you're like, okay, it is their record and maybe I didn't produce it. And I am just serving as the mixer here and I want it to sound like me and be my thing, but ultimately it is their record and I want them to be super stoked on it. Uh, me getting my way and them not getting the record they want. Uh, it's like, who who really wins there, you know? Yeah, so I, I remember this one scenario where this pretty well-known band, I was friends with their producer, mixer. Well, original producer, the guy did a test mix and lost to some big time metal mixer. But I went to the studio and visited them at the end of the recording. And so I heard the roughs. They were slamming. They were so awesome. But there were a couple things about them that didn't totally work. Like the snare and the kick kind of sounded way too similar, but they were powerful as hell. But like there wasn't enough differentiation. And I knew there were like just some technical or like, there were just some issues with it, but the overall vibe was, I had never heard this band sound so slammingly awesome before. Mm -hmm. And yeah. nobody had, this was a band that was kind of disliked a lot. And this was like, Oh, suddenly they were cool. And it was great to hear them like this, but the producer lost the mix because he couldn't quite get it there. So he went to this big time mixer who made it technically amazing, but that vibe was completely gone. Man, it's like so, that, yeah, it's, it's so hard. But it was a way better mix. Yeah, well, it's like, which one wins? The technical, the technically better mix or the one that's got the vibe? And and ultimately, I think you got to go with vibe, you know? And I think the same they, thing. They went with technical. Yeah, on well, this. well yeah. also the technical is expensive usually and people feel like they sh should use the thing that costs them money. So there is that thing you've sunk the money into it you're not going to go back to the vibe but we struggled with this a little bit on on this most recent other lives record uh because there were a couple demos that um early early demos that were never intended to be record you know used on the record that we ended up going back to late <laughs> in the game when that happens late in the game i mean we're almost i mean like we're like turning the record into a label in a month and there's like that thing where you go back and listen to these, there was a couple songs, you go back and listen to these early demos and it's like, are these just better? Is this just better? I mean, it doesn't sound better, but is it is it better? And they were, and we ended up using those and, uh, you know, we had to scramble, but, um, you know, ultimately, if the vibe is there, if the spirit's there, that I think is going to resonate with people more than, the, the the mixer ego thing of going, yeah, but the mix is so technically good on this one. You have to kind of give up the ego a little bit as as a mixer sometimes and go, yeah, but there's this this cool vibe with this other thing. Maybe it's a little hazy or the kick punch isn't quite right or the, you know, it doesn't quite have the bottom end that, that the other mixes do, but there's something to this. It's got a vibe. And you I, I think you have to go with vibe ultimately. And and I and I do think that that cool sounds or interesting sounds uh, I lean that direction over quote unquote good sounds because um, once you do good enough, it sort of, I don't know, it just sounds, it, 
good. It can, yeah, it just sounds good. Okay, well, yeah, it's not, it's not going to stick with me. But that's tough as a mixer also, you know, just, just knowing when, you know, knowing when you've kind of gone maybe too far, maybe you've polished something too much, maybe it's a little too slick, and you've kind of over-egged and figuring out how to revert out of that a little bit and bring you know, hopefully a little bit of the vibe from the demo or, or the rough mix into it. It's tricky. This happens on big records. This oh, yeah. is not like something that's unique to any different level. Like a really famous example is on the uh, self-titled Slipknot record that was uh, done by Ross Robinson. I believe that track six, Spit It Out, was from their demos. And, uh, and if, if you go back and listen... I don't think anyone really noticed, but if you go back and listen, you, you'll hear that it sounds completely different. And uh, for some reason, they just were not feeling the Ross Robinson version. They went with the demo that they did before they were signed, and uh, nobody noticed or cared. Well, that's the thing is, it's only a thing if you know, really. I go back and listen yeah. to records, and like I told you, I'm, I'm like voracious with like rock history. I, I'm so fascinated by by the circumstances that led a band to to make the record they did or what or what lined up to allow a band to make a certain kind of record at a certain time and it is so interesting when someone does point out and go oh well these two were recorded at this studio with this producer but that didn't pan out they redid most of the record but they kept these songs i never heard that ever ever listening i mean and these are records that are songs that i know so well yep. it just never struck me that way because people don't listen to music like that I know, dude, when that first Slipknot came out, I think I listened to it for eight months straight when in yeah. the year 2000, like eight months straight. And it wasn't until three years ago that their A&R guy told me the story about that. And I was like, wait, it does sound different. Yeah. I, it, it, I, it's the same kind of thing like where people think, I kind of like this philosophy in life, nobody cares. What I mean by that is it's not that nobody cares, but like people care about the details a lot less than you may realize. And they, they're not paying attention to you in the same level of detail as you're paying attention to yourself. And it, this, is, this is one of the reasons that I think that people should get over their social anxiety too, because they, I think that a lot of times people with social anxiety feel like they're being looked at or judged a lot more than they really, really are. People typically take a lot of things at face value. And the same goes when you're listening to something, you're just taking it as it's presented to you. Unless you're told this is a different recording altogether, why would you even think that in the first place? Yeah. I mean, you're just, people just, I mean, really what it comes down to is people just aren't judging you that hard because they're too worried about how everyone else is judging them and how they're presenting themselves. <laughs> yep. We all need to just stop doing it. It just doesn't have to be that hard. Just be yourself. It's okay. Yeah. And there's, you know, however many other billion people. And if you're not the one, then, you know, go hang out with some people who you can be yourself around. It's going to be way more enjoyable. Yeah. It I is. Agree. It's, it's, it's tough though. It, it, it means that you have to accept a lot of things and, uh, in yourself, you know, in order to get over some of those fears. And, and uh, it can be hard for people. but And it can be hard as a mixer, too, to get over your your mixing ego, you know, and and accept that something that maybe maybe that is a little vibey or weird or, or maybe the low end is a little weird on that other mix. But it's just, it's okay. You know, I have, band, I have people making revisions on songs and they'll go, oh, is that, 
Is that the exact same? Can we copy the exact same first hit from the second chorus over to the third chorus? I just want to make sure those hit exactly the same. Like, man, no one is listening to your record and comparing the way these two choruses hit back to back and going, you know what? I think the second one might be just a tiny bit. Just It just isn't quite as tight on that first downbeat. No one's listening like that. No one's grading you like that. No one gives a shit about that. If the song doesn't appeal to them energy-wise or the singer doesn't appeal to them or people are way more zoomed out. It's like big picture. No one is making up their mind on whether they like it because of all these technical things. And uh, there's just so much self-consciousness tied up in all that. I, I, It's tough. I want to shake people sometimes and go, this does not matter. But at the, you know, at the same time, I'm also, I want you to be happy with your record. At the same time, though, where's the line? Where do you draw the line? Because at some point, those decisions do matter because you do need to reach a certain level, I think, with your work, a certain standard. At the same time, you're right. People don't listen the way we think they are as mixers. So where do you draw the line between get over yourself versus this is actually an important detail to fix? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd lead in by trying to do that as much as I can until we get to a certain number of revisions. And then I have to look at it and go, is this actually getting better? Or are we just, or just pushing different. food around the plate? Because there there does reach a point where, and, and you know this, it's because we're we're mixing at pretty extreme levels now compared to how things used to be. It's a lot of compression. There's a lot of limiting. Every mix revision, everything you turn down, something else is going to fill that pocket. The bucket yep. is always full. It's always already at maximum capacity. We're already limiting the shit out of everything. If you turn that guitar up a tiny bit, if you turn that bass down right there, if you turn the snare down right there, it is going to change the vocal. It's going to change the percussion. It's going to change the like reverb. It's going to other things that are, and, and you can't know other things are going to fill the, that space. And the same thing happens with EQ. You dip a big, a bigger chunk out of 200 on something, something else is going to fill that space. And the problem that I get to is, and this is when people start giving me really, really, really nuanced mix revisions, uh, really, really deep level stuff where I have to listen like in headphones a few times to even catch the thing they're talking about. There, there is a point where y- you've just kind of smeared the mix into this weird place that maybe the levels are where you wanted, but you're just on this base, you're, you're kind of just putting out these little micro fires. Oh, oh well, I turned that guitar down. Now this bass is too loud. Let's turn that bass down a little bit. And then big picture, you, you, you're like, are we just basically, did you just want the vocal louder? You know, <laughs> cause a lot, cause people have a hard time thinking in terms of negatives and, and thinking of in a subtractive way, which is actually a little more helpful with a mix. What could come down? What, what is blocking the thing that you, what do you actually want out of this? Cause when I get really, really detailed mix revisions, I don't know what the goal is of that revision sometimes. What are you really trying to do? Do you just want to hear more character in the vocal? Because maybe I need to change some compression or saturate it differently or maybe the reverb treatment or the slap delay. Maybe something just needs to change a tiny bit rather than you sort of kind of trying to go around communicating with me and sort of self-medicate the, you know, self-prescribe the the solution through me hacking through all these other parts of the mix. Uh, it can be destructive. And that's when I'm, that's when the red flags go up. I'm like, this is actually just tearing down the good work. We need to talk about like what you actually want out of this. What What is the goal? A good simple example is if you get a mix note that's, could you please turn up the guitar's 
vocals and drums. I want to hear them more. Really, what they want is the bass to be a little quieter. Always, yeah. Yeah, it's important to know what they actually are asking for. Yeah, but I, you know, we have, you know, fortunately, I, I work with a James, you know, as managing me, and he's he's really careful about um, when we go into a mix, when we set up a project, you know, it's communicated what how many revisions we can we can go into because it's you know this there's a mix is isn't ever really done. There's just a point where you go, I think that sounds good. Let's, we got to yeah. move on. You know, the, you can always keep going. And with the wrong personalities, especially with someone that maybe wasn't totally happy with how the tracking went and they're trying to kind of fix it through you, through the mix, it's, uh, you can just go so far down the rabbit hole with people. And I think it's good to just set some of those expectations before and go, hey, we're going to do three mix revisions. If you want to go further than that, we will have to charge because, you know, we just don't have the time to do eight or 10 mix revisions on a single mix, you know. Is that your typical three? I, yeah, we start there. And if someone's got a small thing, I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to go, oh, you wanted that. You, you wanted that bridge guitar down an extra half a dB. We're, we're going we're gonna to bill you because that's the fourth thing you've emailed me about. I'm, you know, we're not harsh with it, but I want people to get what they want. But I also want people to be thoughtful and... Yeah. Um, and, and and try to work and go, hey, give me all of your stuff. Uh, you know, I don't want I don't want a spreadsheet from each. I've, I've seen this, a spreadsheet. Each band member has a column and <laughs> they go through. And I mean, I've, it's only one time I saw this, this, this uh, English band. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And there are cases where someone's asking for something up and some, someone else is asking for the exact same thing I down or different. Yes. And I'm not going to sit and babysit and triangulate with the band to try to figure out what they want. I, I need them to have that combo and come to an agreement as a unit and go, this is something we'd like. Here's the list. Here's And then I get revision one out to them. Like, you guys have that. I, I can't be on board for the whole conversation of every every part, every, you, you know what I mean? We've got We've got too much stuff going on here. What I would do is I would have them elect the point person. Mm -hmm. So I don't choose the point person. They choose the point person. So it's it already sets the precedent that they need to communicate with each other. Yeah. And I make it super clear. I'm not going to be responding to any mixed notes outside of what this person sends me. So if you have revisions you need, you send them through him. And uh, that way it filters out the opposing mix notes because otherwise you'll get one thing from the guitar player then asking to turn the vocals down the vocalist will text you at midnight asking for the vocals up and it's just a disaster oh that's a big brown boundary crosser for me i'm i'm not into that but yeah it's it's so true you get the contrary feedback and then you and you're getting it like you said you get a text from one guy you've got emails from this guy it's too hard to keep track of. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's too disorganized and you end up burning a ton of time. How do you set those boundaries, man? That's actually something interesting to me because, you know, there's a very informal uh, kind of nature to this type of work. And a lot of it is about being personal with the clients and musicians, as we know, don't necessarily go by any normal clock. And so... To them, it might not be weird to text somebody at midnight with an idea. Right. How do you set the boundaries to where it's, uh, they don't feel like you're being an asshole, but also at the same time, it's, uh, you know, it's clear what's not allowed and what's respectful. 
Yeah, I think I think it's 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 every bit as important to that is every bit as important as clarifying expectations in terms of what the goals are with the record beforehand. The having the boundaries when when a work working relationship has crossed into personal or someone has overstepped or they're communicating in a way that does not work for you, you got to tell them and just be straight up and it's not weird but you know, it's I just, when I get text messages, hey, can you send this or can you do this? Or someone texts me or, uh, or Facebook messages me or hits me up on Instagram, immediately I'm just like, send me an email. This basically does not exist if it's a text to me. This is going into a black hole void of the world of text messages. I know everyone loves to text and it's casual, but it just gets lost. And if I get that at you know, midnight and I'm going to sleep or I'm in another session and someone's asking for something. I'm not thinking about it when I check back in, you know, eight hours later, it's already, I've already had 16 other text messages and it's gone. So I'm just really direct with people where anything work related, if it is, if it's mixed revisions, if it's an idea, if, if it's, they want to send me a, a reference, I heard this great song. We should, we should do this on that tune. That's awesome. Send me an email immediately. Send me an email. Because then I've got it all, I, and it just trains people to go, okay, Danny likes to work where there's a paper trail. There's no paper trail with text. I can't keep track of it all. I've got too many clients. We've got too much stuff going on. And uh, so, yeah, for me, for me, it's about sort of training the people you work with to work in a way that works for you. Um, and I have to do that to stay organized because um, things will slip through the cracks if they don't. So that's the thing for me, email. Everything's an email. I can search it. I can find you. If you ever mentioned it, if it ever came up, boom, it's there it is. That's the thing for me, you know? And it's, but I'll tell you what, there are other boundaries. There are the bands that want to push beyond the time that was discussed and that was agreed upon for the day. And uh, there are people that are push boundaries on drug and alcohol. I mean, there's all kinds of boundaries that get tested. And uh, I just think it's really important to tell people that, the, you know, this is this is how I like to work and this is how I need need to do it to stay in you know, where I'm able to do my best work, I need to have these things in place to make sure that I can deliver uh, my best work for you. And if you turn it that way, people are a little more receptive. And I think they grasp what you're going for, which is that they're, you're not trying to shut them down or not be excited. It's just that this is work and it's 1130 and you just texted me and I'm excited about that, but you're gonna have to email me or, you know, sorry, we talked about that. This is what I need in order to be fresh the next day. I can't keep going until 1230 tonight with you and be back here at 11 a.m. tomorrow. It's just not going to work. So on the topic of going extra hours, that's a really interesting one because on the one hand, I'm sure that like if you're in the final scheduled hour of a session, but something great starts happening, you're not going to want to just stop it because it hits the hour, no. right? Like no. you're going to keep going. If something truly great's happening. But however, if you do that, you're setting the precedent that you'll go over that time, which is not a good precedent to have because then suddenly, so say your end time is six, but something just magical is happening at 530 and it takes you till 830 to get it done. You kind of just set the precedent that 830 is now the stop time. Yeah, that's the danger, especially if you if that happens early on in a process. People go, oh, there isn't really a stop time. He'll just go whenever. 
It's, yeah. it's a very dangerous game to play with. I'm pretty firm with it. What I will do, and, and this exists, again, only because I have such a great relationship with Max, my partner here. If a band is, if they're on fire or they're, you know, a lot of times bands fly in to work with me. So they're, they're staying here. They're, they're in town. They're in Austin. And we have a limited time. You guys want to work another four hours? Knock yourselves out. I have to go home for my sanity. But if you guys want to keep cruising, uh, Max is here. He's been here all day. You trust him. He's been engineering with me. You guys keep going. That is the best solution for me to be able to allow people a little breathing room on that, but also do what I need to do to take care of myself. Have you ever had any pushback for doing that? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Definitely. Yeah, people, you know, but here's the thing. A lot of this, you know, we're, again, you know, I, I'm fortunate to have uh, James from Stateside taking care of a lot of these details with the band's management, clarifying, going, hey, just, you know, you know, what what one person considers a day may not be what another person does. You're booking a day of time. That's X amount of hours. Just so you know, we're not there to work, you know, 18 hours today. That they're, It's very clear what the time range is. And mm-hmm. even before that line is crossed going, here's what the fee would be if you choose to continue going. It's an additional X amount hourly to keep going that that long. I mean, on a project that you're going to be on for two months or that has a big budget and you're working and again, some, some of this scales in a different way when you're, if I'm on a project for six weeks, maybe it's a little different than the band that's just in for two days. Yes. Um, I can give a little more and there's, and, and ultimately what happens is if I give a little more, the expectation is for the band to give a little more, you know, it's got to hurt you a little bit. If it's going to rob me of X amount of time with my wife and dog and sleep or whatever else, then it's gonna have to hurt you a little bit too. And that's fine. But that's just fair as fair. You know, it's, you're gonna have to try, you know, pay a little bit more for today. If you want to turn it into a 14 hour day, you can pay for that if you'd like. Makes sense. Yeah. That's very reasonable. Yeah. Especially if you handle it up front. And I think that that's the big thing uh, is the more you handle up front, the better, because then you're not setting precedents for bad behaviors and then surprising them three weeks in when you're, when you just reveal that you're totally not cool with something that you've been allowing for several weeks. Which feels weird to them. They're like, well, why have you been doing it? It's like a very yeah. unclear message. You know, you can't wait until it's not at you and you finally have the nerve to say something. And then it's you're like, mad. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, yeah, totally. So it's better just to, have, I mean, again, it's like expectations, just communicating. And that just comes from experience and doing this enough to go, hey, in the event that this happens, here's how we'll play it. And everyone goes, okay, good. And everyone is easy to agree with that when I say it as plain and simply as we just talked about it. It's easy to agree to when it's an email two months before you're in on the day. You wait till the day. Everyone's like, come on, man. We're in the thing. We got to keep going. Or you get like an aggressive, passive aggressive band member. It's like, hey, man, you know, we, you know, we paid for this. We need you here. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, dude, we already, we already talked about this. This isn't like a, we're not winging that discussion. You know, this is already, we've already, Clear, clarified how that's going to work. Yeah. One of my old mentors told me, be a dick at the beginning. <laughs> Basically, yeah. if you have to be a dick, have, if you have to be a dick, be a dick at the start. Like for instance, if it's something like the band is using the kitchen and then they leave it a complete and total mess, uh-huh. be a dick at the beginning so that it's just taken care of. Because if you wait, 
then they're going to actually think you're a dick. And you'll probably approach it in a much more aggressive way. Yeah, or you're like passive aggressive about it. It's just bad. It fuels a bad dynamic. I mean, the other thing, and this is this kind of loops back to where we started with the intern thing. We talked about what the worst case scenario is of firing someone who's working for free. But in the best case scenario, you know, you're working with someone. It's it's sort of the same with the interns on, on where your lines are, defining lines. And uh, I like for interns to be not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not abusive. I'm not, I was abused as an intern because that was in the late nineties and it was a different time. And again, you know, we talked about the egos. That was still a thing when I was coming up. How do you define being abused as an intern? Oh, just, just like brutal, just cruel stuff where you're, you know, too much toilet cleaning or, you know, like in this case, I, I, you know, with summit studios where I started there, you know, we'd do like a, it was a massive nine, nine studio complex. We would, you know, there'd be a massive orchestral, like a scoring session or something like that. We'd, you know, there'd be 50 people in the room. Wrap up all the XLRs. Okay. I took an hour and a half and wrapped up, you know, however many XLRs because I'm learning over under. Engineer comes in and goes, okay, unwrap them all. Do them again. And you're just what? like, oh, come on, man. You're just being so hard. But you know what? I'm really good at wrapping cables. <laughs> But I don't do that stuff. I'm not harsh with the thing where it's like... You're not hazing people. No, I'm not hazing. I'm not hazing. But it does, you know, just to loop back on the thing about sort of sort of being a dick, it's... I'm not really trying to be a dick. It's just letting people know that when you've agreed to something or when we've got expect... Or, or what, what our expectations are of you as a client or you as an intern. And if you cross that, it's not like... Like, I'm just going to call it out and we're going to talk about it and then we're going to move on. I'm not going to harbor some weird resentment. I'm just going to go, hey, you guys need to clean up the kitchen. We can't, I, yep. I'm not into leaving it like that all day. It's just, it's my workspace too. We're sharing this. I, uh, you know, we, we always like keep it clean in there. That's it. Done. And then we're on to the next thing. I just, I don't want to leave any of those things fueling any weird stuff. And it's the same with the interns. I, I, I'm not trying to be a dick, but I, I do want them to be like, I, slightly afraid of me just a little bit just a little uh, enough to know that i'm watching and that and enough to respect you basically that it's the minimal amount of that whatever whatever the minimum amount of being a dick is required to make sure that there is some level of respect and letting them know that you're watching and that you have high standards and that you are holding them to those same standards that's basically where it's at there's a way to do that without hazing there absolutely is. You don't you don't have to make people scrub toilets to take it out of them that they were talking during a, you know, when you came on the talk back after a take. Or it's just you talk about it and you go, yo, take ins, talk backs on, you are dead silent in here. And that's it. And then we don't talk about it again. Man, the thing also about cleaning is, yeah, okay, maybe there's a situation where cleaning makes sense, but if it's phrased as we're all working here and this is just one of the jobs, that's very different than you fucked up, go clean the toilet. It's it's a huge part of it is how do you do it without making it personal? Because none of this needs to be personal. And people, like like you said about the email thing or, or texting, these are banned people. They're not nine to five. They don't know the the politics and sort of, uh, you know, all the the courtesies of proper emailing and office hours and all the communication and all that stuff. They're, you know, a lot of people are bartenders, waiters, Uber drivers, whatever they are outside of being a musician. They're not sitting at an office, most of them, most of my clients anyway. You kind of have to teach people a little bit and just train them on what kind of like where your lines are. And if they don't know, they don't know that they've done something that's pissed you off, then 
they're just going to keep doing it, and you harbor this resentment, and it, the relationship sours because it gets taken out in other weird, passive ways. Absolutely. Man, and that's so true life-wide, too. I it mean, is. You know, you want the secret to a good relationship with a significant other? Bring shit up when it happens. <laughs> Don't yeah. let anything fester. And when someone calls you out on something, just for a second, just that split second where your brain, your the worst part of your brain goes... They just infringed upon, they called me out. I did something wrong. No, I must be defensive. Just stop for a sec and go, maybe I actually just did something wrong. I could, yep. just, apo- I could just apologize and, and just go, oh, I, yeah, I totally didn't even think of that. I'm so sorry. Let me, uh, let me grab that. And then you move on with your day and hopefully have some peace and joy in your life, you know, <laughs> which is all I'm after is to enjoy our time doing stuff that we love to do, which in my case is make slam and mixes and record bands. So so speaking of joy, let's talk about Summit a little bit. Sure. When you started there, from what I understand, is kind of a luck of the draw moment. Can you talk a little bit about how you got in the door? Okay, so just to step back, just to show how the, just the time of this and the stupidity of it and me being, you know, 17, 16, 17, Summit was bought by Summit Sound is the name of the studio for a long time. Um, and then it was called Summit Burnett when Ed Burnett took it over. Big, big time studio. Rolling Stones recorded there. Bob Wills made all his records there. James Brown recorded there. I mean, it was a huge, you know, echo chambers, tape machines, massive studio complex. Um, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know, you know, it's there weren't detailed studio websites like there are now, you know. I looked up in the phone book. At the time, it was owned by a contracting group called ASC. They bought the studio um, complex and had an installation division. Um, So ASC Summit Burnett was the proper name of the studio when I started working there. ASC happened to be the first recording studio listed under the Recording Studios tab in the Yellow Pages, which is where I looked them up. I looked up, I just went went to the phone book and said, I'm going to call every recording studio and see if anyone will let me drop a resume off to try to be an intern. And uh, that was the first one in the book. First one in the yellow pages, ASC Summit Burnett. I went over there. The reception said, yeah, I can arrange a meeting for, you know, with you and one of the uh, engineers. Uh, We have a guy that comes in two days a week, but um, he's open to having more help. And I went and met with him. And at the time, the engineer that worked there uh, Mark Petty that that I worked for. Mark Petty was in A, and Phil Rogers was in uh, Studio B. Mark was not super hip to Pro Tools at the time because it was still pretty new. We're on Pro Tools four right then. It just switched over to Pro Tools from Sound Designer, and I happened to kind of know it because I had a version of Pro Tools free that had just come out. So I basically earned my I earned my internship by knowing a little, a tiny bit more about Pro Tools than the engineer that worked there. I mean, at, at the time, most of the serious projects there were all on on 2-inch, you know? And Pro Tools was done, you know, to transfer or, you know, they're, they're, they would multi-track to it, but it wasn't, it wasn't used the way it is now where the entire studio is based around Pro Tools. So, yeah, just having a little bit of edge on Pro Tools got me, got me that internship. And then I started skipping school to show up for more days when the other guy that was doing the other two days once he he moved on and then, you know, it be, kind of became a thing where I was there almost every day, just hanging out in the back of the control room, reading manuals and sitting by the tape machine, waiting, you know, waiting to, I mean, it was literally a tape pop. I'd sit in the corner. So. So 
as the world gets more and more digitized and online, that traditional intern role is kind of getting replaced by a new version, I think, uh, like a new style of intern in that sometimes it's remote work. Hazing isn't quite what it used to be. It's kind of frowned upon. That said, are there any characteristics of the old way of uh, being an intern or hiring interns that you think, well, more the old school way of acting like an intern that people who want to find internships should uh, should kind of incorporate into their uh, skill set or how they approach things? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I do think I, you're right. It is, you know, we don't, we we don't have the big studio complexes. A, a lot of those have closed. Um, I mean, certainly in LA, New York, Chicago, I mean, there's, you know, there are big studios still open, but I mean, it's no secret that, that, that part of the recording world has had a really hard time adjusting to the new music industry in the last 20 years. And along with that comes the system of apprenticeship that has been in place for so long. And, uh, you know, more people have home studios, they have project studios, they just have a mix room. So you lose that whole kind of process and sort of familial thing of being part of like a studio group. And along with that came a lot of a higher level of expectation and a standard that it's easier to reinforce when you're in an environment that is a really proper studio there's staff on there just to make uh, at the studio just for the studio's infrastructure the day rates were way bigger back then so there was enough to to where there you know there's a bigger group of people working on these sessions and supporting the studio as a business everyone was a lot more professional Things are a lot more casual now because there's seemingly less on the line. You know, when a label's paying 2500 bucks a day for a massive studio and producer and a solid engineer, and that's a different thing than going and, you know, going to your buddy's recording space and throwing him 300 bucks, and he's got an assistant, quote-unquote, that, you know, there's just a different level we're clocking in at in terms of expectations of behavior and professionalism and you know, fortunately for me, I got a, I got a lot of that um, before that, just on the tail end of, of that world. And it really instilled a, a much different type of work ethic in me and a reverence for the process than I think a lot of guys that I get emails and gals that I get emails from today going, hey, I want to be your intern. I'm like, well, did you just decide that like last week or is your mom making or dad making you do this? Is there... Do you want nothing more in life to be at the top of your game in in the recording world? Or are you kind of just like, mm, studios seem cool. I'm going to go just hang out with this guy because there's, there's a different level now. Man, that is the worst kind of intern, sure. in my opinion. Yeah, the, they don't even want to be there, really. I've had that happen. It's like, why are you coming by? It's such a waste of time, man. What's well, a waste of your time? It's a waste of my time. Interns are not going to help save me any time. It's going to take about three months before they actually can do anything that doesn't take more of my time from me. It mm -hmm. takes, there's a process of getting them calibrated on workflow, where the lines are in terms of interjecting in the room, all that stuff before they're actually, or they, where they can actually even anticipate anything and kind of know okay, they're talking about that kind of overdub. I'm going to go ahead and get those 421s on stands while they're talking about it. They don't, you know, it takes a while to get get to that point with people. So I'm not willing to just have someone in willy-nilly to share 
all of the time and expertise and work that I put into to getting to this place if they're not committed to actually helping and staying on long enough to where they're going to do something for me that's I'm going to get something out of it. You know, I'm not just running a free education program in here. I'm fine working on my own. I'll just work in here on my own. This is why I have such a strong moral objection to that movement that's trying to make it illegal to have free interns. Oh, I I was I laughed at that. I saw that and I was like, "Are you kidding? They don't provide you with anything until you yeah, teach them." It takes a yeah, while. Man, I, I uh, remember when I was a few years ago, I put out a post asking for an intern at URM. And this has happened a few times. Those people like bombarded me with hate. Like I'm trying to exploit workers and this is just another fucking, uh, the last vestige of a corporate system that's being torn down by good people and all, all this kind of shit modern day slavery, like all this extreme stuff. And it's like, maybe you don't understand that in reality, the intern is getting a lot more value out of me than me out of them for months, like you said. And uh, actually something really cool, the Churcos, uh, I don't know if you know them or not, Kane and Kevin Churco out in uh, Vegas, they charged their interns at first. Oh God, that's hilarious. It's, it's hilarious, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it, it makes does. perfect sense. They're getting those interns are getting to sit in on some pretty major records and are getting to learn next to some pretty masterful people. Why should they not pay to be there at first before you even know what kind of value is being exchanged? Yeah, you know, and there's plenty of people that are dropping 20, 30, 40,000 dollars on recording educations and mm -hmm. you know, those places Exactly. You might learn theory but Real bands are not recording at the recording school. I just, just there. You don't really. You're not getting. You're not getting like real. Work, you. It's not real experience. It's theoretical, which is good to learn signal flow and all that stuff. But I mean, look at the money that that gets dropped on that. I'm like, man, come, come be my intern for two to three years. You tell me if I gave you more than that full sale education worth the value. You know. I've got a little moral war going on with big recording schools. Before you do, one thing that I just thought of when you were talking about the the people that are bombarding you about how could you do this, blah, blah, blah. Question for them. How much money have you spent on recorded music this last year? Did you just pay for your Spotify? Have you bought any records? Have you bought any of the product that we've made that as you are you have this upper moral hand? Have you it's actually contributed? to this system to allow for the money to trickle down to the absolute lowest rung, the studio intern, what have you put into the top of that waterfall to see? And how far down do you think that that, that Spotify monthly subscription goes? Cause it's not reaching, it's not enough to cover the intern. It's, it's barely enough to cover me and keep the lights on in the studio. So just, uh, just thought I'd put that in, in, uh, in those people's pipes of smoke. Well, they made that comment. I mean, so they, so they affected change. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Can't you feel the change of comment? Yeah. Making Facebook comments equals doing something. Uh -huh. about yeah. It. Yeah. Welcome to 2020. Okay. Yeah. What, what, what were you going to say about the, yeah. <laughs> no, that, uh, I have a little bit of a moral battle, uh, going on between URM and the big recording schools. Cause, uh, we charge so much less and, uh, we, always hear that people get more in three months than years of recording school. And I think that 
is really fucked to take people going into this industry and charge them 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, $80,000 for an education that, yeah, there's some value to it. Sure. Signal flow is a great thing to learn. And obviously if you're super, super driven, you can turn that, that old school education into something good, but by and large, nobody actually cares if you went to that school. It doesn't actually matter in your career. Yeah. We're not lawyers. We're not doctors. You don't have to have this to practice. No one has asked to see my diploma to see if I am in fact certified to record their album. It will not get you any clients at all. No, it definitely won't. So I I think, and then also by nature, because those places are so big and have invested so much money, you know, like at Berkeley, there's like 20 or something SSL rooms, you know, that, that sort of thing. What it does is because of the money invested, it keeps them from being able to adapt quickly enough to how fast our world is actually changing. So what I notice when interns come in from those big schools is they typically don't know any of the hireable skills. They can tell you the history of Neumann microphones, annotated history, much better than I could. And they know signal flow on some board that they'll never use in their entire life, probably. Well, that's the irony also at the recording school. It's usually it's usually based, the signal flow is usually based around one type of console. And Correct. that's not how the real world works. You got to know how to navigate a Neve. You got to know where the remix button is. You have to, un, you know... It's it's so micro-specialized and it's like in areas that aren't really applicable once you're not in that place. Yeah, exactly. But the things that people really do want in interns, like the shit that really will get you to the next level, you know, up from intern to assistant, like being able to edit really well, great session organization, being able to tune vocals great, all that kind of stuff, uh... I mean, those are the skills that, as far as I know and as far as I've seen, that's what helps interns graduate to higher levels is having those things down that producers have done a million times that they no longer want to do because they take so much time out of the session. They would love almost every producer I know, not all, but almost, there's something that they do that's repetitive and mechanical that they would love to have somebody else that they trust to do that stuff for them at this point in their career. And those are the things I think interns should come in knowing how to do really, really well. Yeah, those things. And I'll tell you the other thing that the interns that I've loved and it, that we've have stayed on for a longer amount of time have graduated into becoming an assistant. They stay late and work with the bands. I can't, I can't yep. do that mix. I'm going to give that, you know, hand it over to so-and-so. The thing that they do, and this is the thing that I tell them they need to do, is be a Jedi. Be invisible in that room, energy-wise, until the second you're needed and you're right there. And that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to stay engaged with no phone on, stay engaged in what's going on, but not really participate. But that is the gig, and you have to earn your participation by... Being there and being patient and and just observing. And the second you're needed, you're on it. But when you're not, you're not chiming in. You're wallpaper. It's 
so hard to do. Think about spending 10 hours a day doing that. And I'm, I don't allow any assistants, any <laughs> interns. I don't allow any of them to have their phones on in here. I have them take notes on pen and paper. I don't want the phone out. I don't want, oh, I'm just taking notes on the phone. No, everyone just thinks you're on Facebook and it looks like you're checked out. No phone. You stay in here, stay engaged. That's it. And it's hard. It's a lot of focus, but that's the only way you actually get all of the processes. If you're kind of checked in, loosely observing a session, you don't really know what's going on. You don't really know the signal flow or the dynamic or all the nuance and all of the things the producer's asking for and seeing how the comp is coming together and why it works that way. You have to be really, really engaged to to pick up on all that stuff. And But you also have to not chime in. It's a hard thing to do. And the people that can do that, they're on the fast track because they've made themselves invaluable to me, you know? Man, your ego has to be in check. And so that's another thing I've noticed with the recording schools is a lot of people come in with oversized egos. Right. So they can't shut up. They're know-it-alls. So I used to live in Florida, had a studio in Florida. So full sale, I was, you know. You're right there. I was on their speed dial. And so I would always get sent interns and this was the case every single time. The recording school kids were always the biggest know-it-alls. They always knew the least and they wouldn't shut up. That's by and large my experience. Yeah. Now, I mean, there are different programs and I think a lot of that, a lot of that depends on who taught them. Of course. You know, there are certainly recording programs that have some really talented professors who have tons of experience who teach people the right kinds of things that actually prep them for real work. But that those are they're very few and far between. There's a, a lot of them are just the the full sale system, or even worse, the predatory audio school who takes GI Bill money, who takes federal grant money, who is going to put you in debt, and they're going to charge whatever they want, like full on private college tuition levels of tuition, and they're making tons of money on this. And you're graduating with very little experience and a boatload of debt rather than just going, I'm going to go learn and buy an Apollo and just try to just suck everything up on the I can knowledge on the internet and intern and observe and just be there. I just I feel like the, the, the people that spend two, three years doing that have no debt be free, you know, a big because yeah, another dude. big part of, of an intern is like, if I'm not paying you and I'm asking for you to be available on a regular basis, it means you have to have some kind of financial or living situation that is going to allow that to happen. Correct. And a kid graduating with $30,000 of debt right out of the gates uh, and high expectations getting paid right away. It's like, man, this is just, you've, you've really painted yourself into a corner on this. You, you could have, you could have taken a loan out and lived off of, you know, whatever, eating ramen for two years off of, you know, 20 grand and and made yourself available and indispensable to someone and grown and had a career, you know? It's just a matter of, it's easy to see that you and I, you know, we've done it enough. You can look back and see these things, but man, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a I, weird I industry, the before. audio education industry. It's a weird thing. And it's sort of, it's like prepping kids, way more kids. I mean, how many kids quote unquote, graduate from full sale every year or, you know, all these programs, conservatory, all these things, way more engineers, producers than the world. I mean, we just don't have an industry that can support that many people, you know, that we just don't. There's, and the reality is, is of all of those people in those classes, maybe a few of them 
out of each class will end up doing it. So Yeah, which you know, is crazy considering how much it costs. It's crazy considering what you're paying for. And if you just want to look at like bang for your buck and education, you could just live cheap and make all your time available and get a little, get an interface and just teach yourself and be and learn. And it's, I feel like you'd be a lot further along than the kid that can tell you the history of Neumann microphones and exactly how to work on one specific type of SSL and no clue how to work <laughs> on any other console ever. I know I'm super biased here, but I think if someone just took URM for three years, tried to get an internship, bought the Apollo and just made it their entire life. And then, you know, they sucked in everything that we gave them online and they went into an internship with the exact attitude that you said. And then when they weren't at the internship, they were just learning and getting better and getting better and making connections. They'd move way faster than the uh, traditional route. 100%. Guaranteed. I get, you know, some young kids, people go, hey, my kid's in high school. He wants to get into music. You know, what, what do you think I should do? Last thing I'm going to do is tell him to go bite off a giant, you know, a giant amount of debt to go to some big recording program. It's it's just not, the industry is not there and you're hedging your bets against yourself. You know, just learn, just make learning yep. on your own. Um, and we have resources like URM now. That didn't exist when I was a kid. Oh my God, yep. man. <laughs> Can you ima I can't you imagine? I can't even imagine having the resources we have, the forums we have now when I was a kid. Crazy, crazy what you could learn just by being dedicated and spending some time with some people that know what's up. So speaking of moving up and, you know, graduating from being an intern, can you tell me a little bit about your journey from Summit to basically now your second iteration of Good Danny Studios? Yeah, well, that's a lot of, that's a lot of, let me think, that's 20 years, so that's... Okay, yeah, so two sentences. Yeah. No, how did you go from from getting to the point where you're, like, all right, I'm going to start my own place. That's that's more what I'm curious about. Yeah. Well, my, my place, quote unquote, was always sort of born out of me being in bands and wanting to record my own bands and friends' bands. My journey is more organic because I come from it from being a band guy. You know, I lived in a house with my bandmates. We recorded all the time. Other bands that we would tour with and play with, they would come there and record. And uh, and I worked out of a number of different studios around Austin in order to, you know, I didn't have a setup to be able to properly track drums or record bands to two inch or, you know, I used to mix out at this mix room in West Austin called Lakeside. I didn't have the infrastructure to be able to do it, but we would, we'd just pay for whatever studio time we needed and we would do whatever else we could back at my place. And, you know, my place was never intended to be more, I'd never, I wasn't setting out to quote unquote, open a studio. It just built you know, pedal by pedal, drum machine by drum machine. There's stuff I have here at the studio that I bought with allowance money when I was 10, 11 years old. There's pedals and guitars, you know. It's just been one little piece at a time to help yep. me make the, you know, records that I want to make with me, with for my bands and my friends' bands. And the studio grew out of that. And other people liked some of the stuff I did, asked me to do this. Oh, that record blew up. It's on the BBC, you know. Things just kind of open up, and it so so my journey was pretty organic, you know, in those terms. I didn't I didn't set out to go. I'm gonna have a business plan and get a small business loan and open a recording studio. It's not you know, nothing formal like that. It's 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 just doing it, you know. And uh, but you know, I've had a lot of along the way. I've had a lot of other weird audio related jobs that have all shaped and informed and you know contributed to making me who I am today. So. 
it's it's been a long journey, you know. I've done post-production, I've mixed scores, I've worked on I've made samples for uh, for you know, like hip hop artists. I've done I've done every part of it, ad agency work, all all kinds of stuff, um all audio related, but um trying to make it work to stay in this field. I feel like when I, you know, when I was young, I had the thing that I I don't know that uh, as many young people have today, which is that I'll do anything. If I can make some money doing the thing I love, I'm just going to hustle. And it's not quite my thing. I'm going to take it because I want to be in this industry and I want to, you're going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. And that means you got to wear a lot of hats. It means sometimes you're doing live sound or, you know, I'm not, I'm not a front of house guy. I'm not, I don't tour it. I don't, I don't as a sound guy or anything, but done tons of live sound. You know, there's just, you just kind of have I to. I hate live sound. I don't, it's not my thing. No, but you know, I did that when I was young to go like, Hey, you're, you're like into music and sound, right? Like we have this thing like, okay, you just say yes to enough of those things. And it, you know, if you stay, basically my belief is this, is if you work harder than anyone else and you're good to people and you and you find the thing that you're good at and, and you really work hard at that. Um, yeah. And you're, and you're good to people that you will succeed. I, I truly believe that, but, um, that doesn't mean it's easy, but I do think you have to, a lot of times you gotta, you're trying to, you're trying to break into it. You know, you, you may not be starting exactly at the thing that you wanted, but you got to earn it. You got to earn your place to get there. You know, I think getting to work on just what you're into is a luxury. Yeah. Yeah. It's taken me 20 years to do that. And and that's evolving and changing for me too. As, as I grow older, and I do more things. I'm like, you know, I always wanted to do this, but I've done that for a while. And I think I'd like to try these other things. That's allows you to grow and expand and draw on those experiences. But I, I think the more experience you have in different departments, you know, go hold a boom for a commercial, you know, get paid, be a sound guy. I don't know. Do, do whatever, hook up microphones, get paid. If you're young and hungry, do whatever you can to, to, to learn, you know, the, you may be stuck doing some live sound at a convention center for some talking head thing, but you're making a little bit of money so you can afford to give your next three days to the, you know, at the studio to be an intern. And, you know, maybe you learn a little bit about frequency and about dynamic mics. It, it, it's all shaping and contributing. I think one of the mistakes that I see a lot of people coming up make now is that they predecide what genre or thing they want to work on and will close themselves off from opportunities before they even really know what they're good at. Right. Yeah. And I guess that's I was starting to touch on that and I kind of went off on the on the hustle thing, but I think that is a a predominant a thing that I see now more so because I don't know that there's as much reverence or patience for the process of really um, taking your time with honing your craft, people kind of want to have, they just want to do the big record now. And it's like, you just it's haven't true. gotten there. And it's it's no different than the young band that has expectations that far exceed their ability or budget. Um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of delusion in it. And, you know, maybe a little delusion is good because it keeps you following your dreams. But there's a point where you're like, you know, you just, you gotta have to, you're going to have to earn that. You got to get there. You got to have to earn it. I, I remember being, I mean, there's a, I was up for a record really early on in my career, maybe 15 or 18 years ago, something. And I, I just wanted it so bad. I was talking to this band. They're one of my favorite bands. I was like, God, it sounds like there's a chance that I might, I might get to do this record. And I didn't get it. And they ended up working with someone who's way more established, a total name guy. And I just, 
I was so bummed out, but I look back on it now. I'm like, I wouldn't have known the first thing to do if that had landed in my lap back then. <laughs> it would have actually probably hurt me. But I remember being so disappointed about it, you know? And it's interesting how those things shape you. And, uh, you know, they just teach you a little bit about, you know, your place and kind of earning it and uh, and having and being being okay with yourself, having some patience with the process of of getting getting to where you want to be. You know, there there is a thing that happened that we have now in our culture where people want, they want the end prize. They want the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but they don't understand that the journey is actually the reward. The day-to-day stuff of getting there, of achieving that, that is the reward. The process is the reward. And I don't know that young people have that sort of, that I've come in touch with in the intern, I, I don't know if I see that kind of patience and, and understanding uh, with the process. Man, it's taken me a long time to honestly be able to say that I agree with that. Like, I mean, I always knew that concept, but only recently have I, like, really, do I really feel that? I think it takes patience and maturity And it's a practical thing too, because if you're only in love with the reward itself, you're going to have a pretty miserable life because the reward is so short lived. Like if you get, like if you win, say you win something or you get the big check or some shit like that, like it's just one small fraction of the entire process. And so if your entire process is based on that one moment, then what are you doing? You're going to have a miserable fucking time. And what are you doing in between those? Yeah. Hating life. Yeah. We're not in a, we're not in a phase of, uh, you know, as we've been, I mean, not to be too dark, but we're not, we're not in a phase that the odds aren't great. Okay. Basically if, of, if you're trying to make it to, if you're trying to be the biggest mixer in the world, you're trying to be the biggest band in the world. It's a hard, it's just a hard time. And you know, we've got a lot of music venues, independent music venues, bookers, club owners. We're, we're in a really hard time right now with the pandemic, knowing where things are going to shake out. So I'm inclined to say that that more than ever, we need people who are kind of like passionate and in it for the right reasons. And I think this industry will reward you if you are good to people and you are and your heart is in it. I think it will reward you if you can, if you can stay in it. It's a hard business. And there's a lot of really talented people who there's just a point you got to tap out and go, I need a more stable lifestyle or I need... I, you know, I want to start a family. I want to buy a house. I want to do other things. And this is not going to support that. But if you, if you're a lifer and you're into it and you want to educate yourself and work hard, you absolutely can make it in this world, but you, you gotta be, you gotta be long-term focused, um, which is hard to do. It's hard to do when you're young, you know, everyone's eager and you know, they see, they see things they want and they just want to be at the top of the mountain already. And it's like, man, you know, if you could just teleport to the top of Mount Everest would that view even be that sweet? Hell no. Nah. No, of course not. You've got to always be playing the long game. And all right, so one thing that I've noticed that about producers who have played the long game successfully and have stuck it out is that they get a lot of repeat clientele. Right. That's like kind of one of the, if you're about, if you were to like find what a lot of successful producers and mixers have in common. I think repeat clientele is one of them. Typically the ones who do nothing but one-offs tend to not last very long because there's a reason for why people don't go back to them. So my question is, uh, even though that decision is not the producers to make, it's 
hundred percent the label and the artist's decision to make. Do you think that there's things that we can do as engineers to help drive repeat clientele? I'll tell you one thing that makes sure that it doesn't repeat is if you don't see the project all the way through the very, very end, the very end when it's the most tedious, last, final, annoying mix tweaks and just triple checking to make sure you have an instrumental on that thing. If you're not good with people and you don't keep your attitude in a healthy work, in, in, a, in a good spot with people, if you give into that thing that I see happen with other producers and engineers where by the end of the project, they're worn out from maybe some passive, you know, some whatever communication or the work working relationship, they're ready to be done. They're ready to say, fuck it. I'm over it. I've already got it there. You have stepped to, off the gas. You step. Yeah. You lose it a little bit at the end. And those things where you're like, ah, I wouldn't get defensive with someone when we got three more weeks, but this is the end. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck this thing. And you can really trash the last taste that people get of you is that last moment down to the invoicing on the last session and how you, you know, even sort of communicate with the band once the record's done. That stuff, it's all, that is the last taste that anyone gets of the working experience with you. And, and they will remember that. And there are a lot of people that I know, they get fed up, they're over it, they're, and people don't go back to them because they, they'll let the little defensive things, you know, out or they'll be a little shitty about a mix revision or do a little dig or, you know, they're kind of over it. And it's like, man, you were just, you just threw away all of the hard work of getting it all the way here just to, just to get that one little moment. And, you know, it's not worth it. It's just not. So I don't know. I think a big, a big thing is just that it's just, just keeping staying pro all the way to the very, 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 very end, very last end. It's like letting your guard down at the very end, basically letting the crazy out. Totally. One stopgap against that is trying to make sure that you you have good communication the whole project. So it never even comes to that. So there's never even that moment where you're like, you get to that point. I mean, that's a theoretical ideal, but you know, that, that is one thing that I see, uh, I see with some, you know, I've, I've, friends, colleagues, you know, other engineers, other producers, other mixers, I know that, that will veer there and they, they, people just don't go back. You know, they don't, they don't, there's, and you know, here's another thing. There are people who engineer, produce mix and aren't able to share any real enthusiasm or positivity or whatever about the record. And Man, it just takes the tiniest bit of that to make the band feel validated. Like they feel good about what they made and go, you know what? This is like a little scary to put this out out there. It's like our art. It's my words. It's all the stuff we put together. It's a little, it's a, it's a big thing. Can you just lift them up a little bit and make them feel good about the thing they made? And, 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 you know, go, Hey, I love this element of this song. I love that you guys do this thing. Anything just give, just make people feel good about the thing they're making, you know? Because some people will be sort of uh, removed on an emotional level. And I, I'm not saying you have to get super invested and gushy here, but something just to let people know that you care about what you're working on and that you care about their project and them and that you're enjoying it and you're happy to be along for the ride, you know, that, you, that you're honored to be there. There's, there's a lot of that that I think some people just, they think if I say nothing, well, then it doesn't count against me. And I think it actually does. Yeah, I think you're right. Man, another thing that I've noticed that kind of 
I don't want to say guarantees that people won't come back, but it definitely pushes things in that direction is to focus on getting them to come back right while you're still working on that current record, which I, as an artist, I've experienced producers doing that to me, like trying to already sell me on the next record before we even finish this one. Oh, and just like bad. pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Pressure, pressure. Pre it's kind of like thinking to like dating when there's like, too much pressure coming from one party way too early, like uh, trying to push things to be way too serious before it's ready for that. As an artist, when a producer did that to me earlier in my career, it reminded me a lot. I've had a criminal stalker before. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I'm not going to say that they were the exact same kind of person, but I'm going to say that. So this stalker, basically fell in love with me after knowing me for a day and uh was it was nuts for like years wow. uh, got rid of i got rid of her and she's where's that podcast i want to hear this one yeah i thought i think i've talked about okay. her before yeah. she she sucks but uh but uh, an actual criminal stalker my take on the producer that does that to you is like it's a branch off the same tree of just trying to pressure someone and pressure someone and pressure someone into something they haven't even agreed to or you haven't you haven't really passed stage one and you're already trying to get to stage three, basically. Yeah. The thing that gets you the next record is by making this one a great experience. And the yes, stuff I feel proud exactly. Of, that's it. You don't even have to spell cast. You don't even have to use car sales. You don't have to use these cheap tactics. People feel them. It feels bad when people, when someone wants something really badly from me, it feels bad. I'm immediately backing backing away when someone's hard selling me it feels bad yeah it's repulsive no that yeah it's not it's it's not good the the way you do it is just by delivering quality work and making the experience every day the entire journey getting there you know good enjoyable as much as you can i mean it's it's hard work and tensions flare up and there's disagreements all that stuff and navigating that in an elegant sophisticated way that's sort of just lets all of the weird negativity stuff fly out the door and encourages the the process to be enjoyable. I mean, that's, that's how you get the next record. That's how you get people to come back. So switching gears a little bit, uh, I don't want to spend too long on this, but, uh, I feel like we should just talk about it a little bit. A lot of times genre music will dictate the gear use, like in the metal world, it's kind of easy to get away with doing everything digitally because the instrumentation arrangements are made to be so precise like yeah the tightness is the thing it's essential it is the thing yeah and so it kind of this is not a 100 rule there's not a method or a piece of gear that works 100 of the time but you know like a lot of to see like a bunch of amp modelers and replace drums and things like that that's pretty commonplace in metal because the sound you're going for lends itself to that kind of gear. So for things like indie though, uh, and folk that warmth or I don't want to call it tonal sloppiness, but it's like way like a hazier, more mid, a more yeah. prevalent mid range and some haze. It's like looser mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. So that said that, you know, sometimes genre dictates the tools when you're getting started with a new client, what are some of the ways that you decide on, which direction you're going to go? Well, the thing that guides me regardless, because I, I work on all kinds of stuff. I mean, I, I'll i go from, you know, I, I mix scores in 5.1 and I'm then I'm on some Doomy record and then I'm working on 
an eight-track cassette lo-fi thing, and then we're moving to an electronic. Th- it's I'm, I'm all over. The thing that I start with is references immediately. I'm, from the first conversation we have, references. What are the sounds? What are the sounds that appeal to you guys? Send me some of the stuff that you love. Let's put a spot, like a shared Spotify playlist together or something that's shared that we can go, this is a great reference for that. Let's throw this on this list to help get everyone kind of calibrated on what we're going to make, you know? Because some of those things aren't as clear. And, you know, certain genres, you know, you're talking about metal. It's like, okay, we're going to, I've got my kick samples I love. I've got my setup we love for tracking drums. We've got the Kemper. Like, you're just dialed in and it's, you just do it. If you're working on something's throwbacky, or, you know, they're going for some kind of soul 60s vibe or something like that, you really need to know the music that they're touching on and referencing so you can educate yourself on what works in it and what um, and have something to aim for. And then beyond that, it's knowing your tools and knowing the gear. And that may be researching a ton on how did how was that record made? Why does it sound like that? This thing that we keep referencing, what is it that 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 makes it sound like that or what makes these songs work and understanding what makes the music, the arrangement actually work in, in those, uh, in those references that guides everything for me down to instrument choice, down to arrangement discussions, vocal treatments. You know, if everything we're referencing has like a more mid rangey upper mid range bass tone, so the drums can be massive and subby. Great. That tells me what, how we need to track. If we're looking for, giant bottom end from every for like low pianos fuzzy organs giant crunch you know crunchy guitars then i have to we have to i have to know that and we have to be thinking about that when we're miking drums because they're all working together and and getting a picture of of what it is that appeals to that group of individuals that the band you're working with that's that's the way you kind of, that's the way i get calibrated you know that's that starts the combo anyway so the vision dictates the tools. For me, it does. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it dictates the workflow in some cases. I don't understand why there are some producers who just choose the tools before the vision's even defined. I feel like that's such a lazy, a mentally lazy way to approach things. Or they're like, I'm safe doing this and I know this works and it may be wrong for this band, but it's comfortable for me. So I'm just going to do that. Like, well, they're not going to come back and work with you again. Bands don't appreciate that. No, no. It's like, oh, this is the way we do it. Just get in there and do it the way we do it. It's not, that doesn't feel good. Unless they're coming to you and going, we love that record you made with this band. We would love for it to sound just like that. I'm like, well, we can do it the same way. I mean, you know, and then inevitably it doesn't sound like that band anyways. Of course not. Those conversations, that dictates whether we... Are we working on tape? I mean, it's budget and references. You know, are we are we tracking this a certain way? Are we tracking live in the room? Are we building drums? Are we just tracking drums to the demo, getting those dialed in, gonna work on bass? You know, are we how multiple how how layered versus how live is this? All of those things stem out of the reference. And it's about just being a music lover, being a fan of music, understanding music and going. I know why this music works. I know what's great about this. And I know what it is that we can lift out of this without having to go, I listened to that song. Could you tell me what about it? I mean, you know, maybe listen and see if you can figure it out. There's, and, and I feel like that's a chance to show the band how invested you are in, in their project is, and, and win them over early on. Cause it's, 
for me, it's essential to earn trust as early as possible. I don't want to be fighting for it midway through the project. I want everyone to feel like they can trust me when they come in day one. The best way to do that is to give a shit and show them that you give a shit. That's one of the hardest things to do. It's hard. It's hard, especially when you have a busy schedule. I mean, we've got, I've got stuff on the books in September now, and I'm like trying to be thoughtful about this record that's, you know, three months away, but I'm also trying to approve masters from a record that we finished last month and I've got to hit that label back. And it's a, it's a lot. I'm, I've got, it's a lot to care from the beginning all the way to the end, but it is the thing that makes, it makes people feel validated. It makes them want to keep coming back to you. It makes, and even the labels appreciate it. You know, when I'm the only one going, Hey, I got the second test pressing. It's, it's still not right. I'm, let me digitize this for you and send it to you. We can't approve this one there. You know, people are appreciative when you're in the process and helping them make the whole product, the whole thing start to finish as great as possible. That's, that's why people come back to you. And it's, you know, it starts, it's the thing I said, it's like, it's just getting, earning their trust and showing you care early on to even sort of talk about making the entire process sort of like built around their references and what they want to do. It's reimagining your whole process in a way that you know is going to serve their music. It, it means a lot to people. And so th- those things are all, they're all tied together, really, you know? I do know. I, uh, I absolutely agree with you. I wish more people thought that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the other thing is this, is a lot of people don't, and a lot of people come to me, and they are damaged. Oh, yeah. That, that's, man, that, okay, so on the topic of trust, that's a tough one because, yeah, yeah earning trust, especially when you're, earlier in your career is really, really hard to do. But even if you're not really early in your career, if you get a band that has some sort of trauma from a previous studio experience, they're bringing that with them. They've got baggage. And uh, sometimes it's up. Yeah. It's not even that they don't trust you because it's you. It's got nothing to do with you. How do you get past that? Yeah, it's tough, man. It depends. It depends on the type of trauma. But you usually what happens is when someone comes in and they've been wronged in in their mind in, in some way by someone else they've worked with, they're protective and they tend to want to overcorrect in whatever area allows them to make sure that that same brand of abuse or wrongness or whatever doesn't happen again. But it's tough because there's walls up and sometimes that means you can't do just the basic things in the kind of simplest way possible. It can be really hard. I don't know. You know, some, some bands, I think they just need therapy and they need, they need (laughs) to, they need to vent about it a little bit. And, and I'm actually really interested to hear what those experiences are so I can be sensitive to it. You know, it's just like being, let's say a family member has been in an abusive relationship. Well, knowing what that kind of abuse is or loved one, whatever. There's just areas that you stay so far away from, you know, understanding what that trauma and what those triggers may be associated with it. It just means, you know what the do not fly zone is. And it, it means you never have to put your foot in your mouth because you overstepped. And, uh, and usually bands are, are happy to share because they feel validated in that they were indeed wronged and that that was not a cool thing that that producer, engineer, mixer did or said or left them with. And uh, and then that allows you to make sure that you don't do the same thing, you know? Yep, I completely agree. And it's also just insane. I mean, I the stories that people come in here with, with like telling me about uh, people they've worked with, and, and in some cases I know them, I'm just like, wow, that is just so fucked up. 
That is such yeah. a crazy thing to say to people <laughs> or a way to act. I can't, I just can't believe that. I'm like tick. I'm like, that is crazy. What, what a weird thing. The thing that's weird though, is when you hear that and then you talk to the producer they're talking about because you're friends and they've got a completely different take. Always. On what happened. Yep. Typically the band will come in and talk shit, be like, this guy wasn't invested, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll talk to him and he'll be like, man, those guys didn't have their shit together. It was like a fucking circus. Like yeah. they, they don't communicate. They couldn't play their songs. They only had like one song written. Like There's always two sides to every story. It is interesting. Yeah. So the way I look at it is whether the trauma is real or perceived doesn't matter. All that matters is that they don't feel that way about this experience. All that matters is that you go, I'm sorry, man, that sounds really hard. Let's make sure that it's not like that this time. Yep, that's it. exactly. Moving on. Okay. Whether or not it right. actually went down that way, doesn't matter. Yeah, what people feel as being true is more true to most people than the actual truth. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Well, Danny, I think this is a good place to end it. I right. want to thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I've absolutely enjoyed it. I'm, I love I love getting into the people parts of what makes everyone tick and what makes everyone work in this world. I, I love we got to to spend some time talking about that. I'm sorry to everyone that wanted to just hear about snare drum miking techniques, but this is way more interesting than me. <laughs> if they want that, this is the wrong podcast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe go to the first hundred episodes. We've covered that. Now we're in, now we've gone meta. But not, not just that, man. This was a very conscious decision I made. Um, it was either I'm going to quit doing this podcast or I'm going to make it interesting to myself. And so there's that part of it, but there's also this other part of it that when this started, Nail the Mix was not a thing yet. Um, right. It was still in the works. But once we launched Nail the Mix and the rest of the URM platform, like discussing snare miking technique on a podcast is so inferior compared to our videos online. Oh, you can show so much. It's just, yeah. there's so much more to illustrate the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it, I feel like this is not the right medium to talk about that kind of stuff. This is the kind of, this is the medium to find out, to get into the heads of the people who make those great sounds. But if you actually want to learn the techniques themselves, the stuff on URM, that's way that's better than talking at. about it on a podcast. So yeah, so it was a conscious decision to avoid that. Every once in a while, I'll talk to somebody who, their brain just doesn't go towards the human issues. They're just, they are gear, just gear, a, gear, 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 gear. Yeah, yeah, gear, gear, gear yeah. technique. And I'll I'll ride that wave if I have to, but um, I prefer not to. Yeah, I'm with you. Man, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Dude, thank you. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at Levy URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit URM.academy and press the podcast link today.